Frankie and it's Misa and we're back <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yeah it's been a minute I guess since we've uploaded I think the last thing we did was in March for women's yeah 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 right yeah there's just been a lot going on just a lot of like emotionally exhausting bullshit happening and um at, at the moment I really couldn't focus on much else so <laughs> agreed um Sorry we've been gone so long, but we're here and we're back. And I think we have some really kick-ass soundtracks to talk about today. Frankie? I'm excited. Yes. So excited. It's been it's been uh, a journey since Birds of Prey, and I'm just excited to cover my ridiculous movie. Me too. I'm ready to hear you talk about this. I guessed it, but I I told Frank earlier, I was like, I really didn't try to guess it at first. Like, I really didn't give it a lot of thought. <laughs> yes. Misa's so good at guessing movies, guys. Like, just from the pictures. And so I told her when I sent her my clue, no guesses. And then um, yesterday we were, like, in a pre-planning. Um, and she guessed it right. And I am just so enthused to talk about this movie because it's one of those dumb funny movies that you can put on in the background and it doesn't matter how many years have lapsed you still know every line and every corny moment and it makes me happy hell yes <laughs> so we got some great guesses for what everyone thought my movie was but no one got it right which uh it's not surprising my movie is not a super popular movie. It's, um, I guess, very specific, kind of a, a, a theater nerd movie, if you will. I know a lot of theater nerds who enjoy this movie. And yeah, without further ado, the movie I have chosen to cover today is the 1999 American comedy film that was an SNL spinoff, and that is Superstar, starring Molly Shannon. I literally love this movie. I very specifically remember watching this movie in theater and then watching it over and over and over again because I did love SNL and I thought Mary Catherine Gallagher, who is our main character, was just freaking hysterical. She was definitely one of my favorite original Saturday Night Live characters because I grew up watching Saturday Night Live like I remember me my sister and her boyfriend at the time we would stay up on Saturday nights and watch Saturday Night Live and watch movies and I like around the time that I was watching was like Tim Meadows, Chris Farley, Phil Hartman like the really good 90s cat yes yes and I loved Mary Catherine Gallagher. And I remember this one specific skit I loved her in because her and Chris Farley were like in love. <laughs> and he thought like the parts where she like she puts her hands under her arms and then she smells them like that and he thinks it's like a turn on. It was so cute. 
Do you remember that skit? I do, and I love how you describe it. It's cute. <laughs> I just thought they were fucking adorably awkward and just, oh, it was so sweet. It was only that one skit, of course. Like, it wasn't like a, there was no continuity to those skits, but yes. I specifically remember that skit. But of course, all of her skits were awesome. They are hilarious. And I think what I love about her is her ability to never break character, first of all. She is phenomenal at staying in character no matter what she's doing. And I absolutely love just how enthralled she becomes. Like, she totally embodies Mary and everything about her is Mary. I love how Molly Shannon was basically like a fucking wrestler like she took bumps like nobody she put her body through shit for that fucking character among others yes she had like no regard for her well-being she was just like if it's for the skit if it's funny then I'm gonna do it and that's awesome yes and she totally embraced the awkwardness and I just I absolutely love it so um without further ado I'll just jump right into my movie so like I said um Superstar is a spinoff of SNL's character Mary Catherine Gallagher that was created by Molly Shannon and was a reoccurring character on SNL in very very numerous skits um she created Mary Catherine as this awkward teen who's trying to find her place in the Roman Catholic uh, private school and just kind of in her own life she's like that incredibly awkward teen unpopular girl who is ridiculously weird, um, hyper competitive, thinks she is 100% a superstar. She thinks she's gorgeous and the best at everything. And she's just awesome. Um, but I mean, I wish I had her, I guess, and not her personality, I don't wish I had her, but I wish I had her self-esteem because she's super like she doesn't care really what others think. Like when people are calling her names and everything, she's like, are you aware that whatever you say <laughs> bounces off of me and sticks back to you? You'll keep that in your back pocket. Because <laughs> she's so matter of, okay, mind you, I haven't seen this movie in like 15 years, but she's so matter of fact. She's like, that I'm rubber and you're glue and whatever you say to me bounces off of me and sticks back to you and I'm like oh, yes and that's how the, that's how all the other teens feel because they're like what okay loser so Mary Catherine is just that like awkward stage that we all went through times a thousand and Molly created her actually when she was in um college at NYU with um some of her other friends when she was like in the um improv troupe and she just kept Mary and she grew into this amazing character that went on to star in SNL and found her way to her own movie. And that's thanks a lot of that thanks goes to um Steve Wayne Corn, who is the writer. He did meet Molly on SNL. They both did writing for them, and then of course Molly starred on SNL. And they decided to do the spin-off of Superstar. And it became this amazing movie that actually, for SNL movies, it's one of the top um, spinoffs. There's not very many that were super popular. I know Misa and I kind of touched base on this. Um, we, of course, recognize Night of the Roxbury as more of the original and, like, super popular um, 
but Superstar is right up there with it. Now, of course, it didn't fare well. Like, it didn't do great with, like, Roger Ebert, you know, or other critics, but it's one of the better SNL movies, in my opinion. In my opinion, yes. I think that this and Night at the Roxbury are both very solid because those characters, you're able to configure a plot around the character as opposed to just, like, throwing them in a skit that could have only been five minutes. Like, the ladies' man probably has not aged very well. I don't think I'm ever going to watch it in my adult life, but I I will watch Superstar any day of the week. I That's one movie that, like, I saw in theaters, and then I rented it from the video store, like, multiple times yes. <laughs> in my childhood. Um, for me, Superstar is, like, my favorite SNL original. Superstar is definitely one of the best, and I will argue that until the day I die. <laughs> right, right, and I completely agree. Um, again, rented this like from Hollywood uh, movies and blockbuster like all the time, and can I surprise myself? I haven't seen this movie like you said in years, and it just fell back into its naturalness of me repeating every single line and doing her you know moves for superstar and her dancing around her room and then the little whistle she does as she's praying every night like I remembered every single part (laughs) because I watched it that much so um and a lot again that thanks was to Lorne Michaels who did do I'm sorry Steve Corin who did the writings Lorne Michaels of course is the producer who is one of the big producers from SNL and then Bruce McCulloch is the Mm -hmm. director um, who also was a part of SNL. He was a writer. And then he did do some other movies like Stealing Harvard, Dog Park, um, and then some TV sh- TV series, including Switch City and Gilmore Girls, which I actually was not a fan of, but, you know. Understandable. I, I, I don't know. I just couldn't get into it, but whatever. I digress. So we know that Molly Shannon, of course, plays Mary Catherine, and well, Molly has been in SNL, of course, but she has made her own name in other movies as well. Um, she was in Night of the Roxbury, Never Been Kissed, which Misa has covered, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, um, My Boss's Daughter. She was in a couple other Will Ferrell movies, as well as Hotel Transylvania movies, which I covered earlier in our podcast. So we've covered a couple movies that she has been in. And she is kind of always that background character in those movies, but she's a very, um, she can stand on her own, if you will. Like, she doesn't need SNL to complete her or, like, that's not the only thing on her resume. She is definitely a very well-known actress besides SNL, in my opinion. And she is just, I, I mean, she just, I love her smile and her personality she's so bubbly and so silly and I think that definitely comes across on stage and she really is the main star of this movie like yes Will Ferrell is in this movie as Sky, her love interest but he does not have a whole lot of lines and he is just kind of her love interest like yes he has some parts that are super important but Molly really carried this movie you're right. And as much as I love Will Ferrell, <laughs> I'm glad that her love story takes the direction that it does. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I gotta say, like, some of Will Ferrell's fucking lines, like, uh, even when he's playing Jesus, she's like, oh, my God. He's like, oh, my me. Oh, my me. <laughs> Which, yeah, those one-liners are hilarious. Or when they have the random dance breaks, I call these the compliments. 
and you're welcome. <laughs> like, it's just, it's utterly ridiculous. A lot of it doesn't always make sense. Um, but he's definitely a strong character, but I really, truly feel like Molly carried a lot of this movie. Um, there are some other great actors as well. Harlan Williams, who ends up playing Slater, her additional love interest. Um, Elaine Hendricks, who um, plays Evian, her, I guess, arch nemesis, who um, I didn't realize that she is the uh, stepmom or soon-to-be stepmom from The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. I don't know why that didn't click <laughs> until recently, like I, until my adult life. Like I had no idea that was her when I was younger, but I also don't think I really paid attention to that. Um, there's also uh, Mark McKinney, Glennis Johns, um, Jennifer Irwin, and uh, my least favorite character, Tom Green. Oh, right, because they're like idiots in the classroom. Yes, I hate him in this movie, actually. He says a couple things we're not going to talk about, but whatever. <laughs> it's a This movie, maybe not all the dialogue aged very no, well. not at all. Um, and I mean, I'm not even saying that that was okay to say in the 90s, but I think now we're a little more aware of the sensitivity that goes behind some of the things that were said. But uh, I, if you remove Tom Green from this film, this film does not suffer. Let's say that. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, no. He's definitely just like an extra yeah. in my opinion. Which that goes to show that he really shouldn't have been there at all at all I don't know why he was in this but you know whatever it was a choice um this movie did not win any awards like I said it's not known as a huge blockbuster hit um but Molly Shannon was um, nominated for the blockbuster entertainment award for 2000 and um Jennifer Irwin was nominated for the Canadian comedy award in 2000 as well neither one but we did get two nominations for this film so basically, this movie starts off with Mary telling her story, and we see her zoom in on how she can get into the pool in two different ways, and she ends up rescuing a boy with a very distinctive birthmark, in which she says, your birthmark looks like shit. <laughs> and she saves him, she uh, dances around and calls herself a lifeguard. <laughs> All of this is to our very first song, which is Beautiful by the Go-Go's. It is important to note this song does play more than once, but I'm going to cover it for the beginning just because I really enjoy this song in the beginning part. This song was released in 1994 on the Return to the Valley of the Go-Go's album. Um, it was their second compilation album, and there are two versions of this, a single disc and double disc. Um, this song was not one of their more popular songs, but I think it's actually one of my favorite songs by the Go-Go's. And there was, it was really hard for me to find a lot of information about this since it was not one of their most popular songs, and it was written just for the reunion track. Um, this song is technically on the B side of the disc, which you know how we feel about B sides. Mm -hmm. Always one of the better songs. Um, but I'm going to cover a little bit more information about the Go-Go's just because it was hard to find so much information about this song. So the Go-Go's are an American rock band that formed in LA, California in 1978, which was a shock to me. I didn't realize they'd actually been around for so long. 
I assumed they were like an 80s band. Yeah, I always thought that they were like, they emerged and like peaked in the 80s. Yeah, so I was shocked. I was like, wow, I didn't realize that. And that was even earlier because for them to be the first all-female band, they started in the 70s, which is crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. So fighting for the women's rights since the 70s. Love it. Um, So they did quickly rise to fame in the 80s, and they finally got their chart-topping album in 1982 for being the all-female band who wrote their own material and played their own instruments. That was a really big deal for them. Their debut album, um, The Beauty and the Beat, is considered one of the cornerstone albums of the U.S. New Wave music. Um, And it definitely is considered just that album that broke barriers and paved ways for female acts to come. And it is recognized for that throughout music. So that album did yield them three of their biggest Hot 100 hits, which included Our Lips Are Sealed, We Got the Beat, which everyone knows that song and then also the song vacation um all of these did hit the top 40 um and earned them the right of being considered the first female like worldwide band um they sold more than 7 million records worldwide from that album and this is what paved their way to fame basically Um, They did break up in 1985, but they reconvened, and they eventually got a Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2011 for all of their awards and recognition, especially for being part of the first female rock band. And they were nominated to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2021, which is this year. I had no idea that it was just, I was really shocked that it took that long. Yeah, I I feel like there are bands that have done less and been around for less time that are long in the Hall of Fame. Right, and so when I, I was like, wow, I didn't realize. I mean, for them to have started in 1978 and for all of their, like, I guess their top, top hits to come out between 1981 and 1984, I would have just assumed they would have hit, you know, earlier. But for it to take that long, I was like, wow, that's, that's a long time to be waiting, especially when you're considered like the cornerstone and like breaking barriers for women in music. Yeah, that's revolutionary, the stuff they did. Absolutely. Um, and so after their breakup and after, you know, their popularity, um, they did kind of take a really big break. Um, and that's when they eventually came back to release the album, Return to the Valley of the Go-Go's, which is where the song Beautiful comes. Um, I did not, like I said, find a lot of information about Beautiful just because it is not one of their most popular songs, but I love the lyrics for this song, um, and that is one of the reasons why I think it just resonated to me. Um, one of the lines that I love, it says, and you might think I'm crazy, so what if I am? My head is full of good things, enough for everyone. And then the chorus says, beautiful is all I see when I look at me. And I think that line is just so revolutionary in its own way. And it just builds that self-confidence that I think Mary really embodies. And I think that's why I think the song fits so perfectly for this scene. Because then Mary goes on to say that she grew up in the, what people called the ugliest house and the ugliest town with the ugliest dog. (laughs) 
and she talks about how awful, you know, like everyone in her family has gone through accidents and she explains how she's an orphan and her grandmother has raised her. Um, and then she talks about how her parents died um, by a school of hammerhead sharks. And, um, you know, it's just, it sets the tone for her being awkward and being raised by an older person. And we see from an early age, she went to a Catholic school and she was raised in a very religious home, pretty much. Um, and she prays every night to be kissed in that very special way that she wants to be kissed. And she's like tonguing the air. <laughs> she's like a kid too. Yeah. She absolutely was. She's like, and please, God, send me someone to tongue kiss and make out with like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just so incredibly awkward. Um, but yeah, it was uh, that song. It just perfectly resonates with Mary because Mary 100% thinks she's beautiful and she is not going to speak for anyone's um, you know, recognition of less than being beautiful. And she goes on to decide that the only way for her to get that kiss she wants and to be the person she wants is to become a superstar. And so we see her walking up to school after the song plays and we get more introduced to Mary as a teen. And the wind blows and of course her skirt blows up and like you see her white granny underwear. <laughs> Which is so awkward. Um, so yeah, uh, during this time, we're introduced to just our background story where we see that um, Mary is not popular, but she dreams of kissing Sky Corgan, who is played by Will Ferrell, the most popular boy in school. Um, and of course, he is interested in the most popular girl in school, Evian, her arch nemesis. And she sees them making out, and then she decides that she's going to go <laughs> make out with a tree mm -hmm. who she wore this uh, kiwi lip gloss just for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's talking to it. She is, and she was like, <laughs> I can't do it. It just it cracks me up. She's like talking to the tree, and she's like telling the tree she's going to it and he's so naughty and then one of the nuns catches her and she's like oh sorry I was just doing my part to save the rainforest <laughs> <laughs> and so the um I guess the head it's not a pope father the head father is that what you call him uh I, I'm guessing yeah the or headmaster or whatever he is of the school whatever the main the main father head honcho head honcho of the school says, Mary, you are a special girl. So special. We are going to put you in special education. And so they put her in the um, special education classes where we see, uh, and I do want to say that I highly disagree with them calling it special education. It's just a place where they put all of the kind of misfit kids, which I don't know how Catholic schools roll, but that's not what we do in public education. So I uh, just wanted to get on my soapbox really quickly about that and how I disagree, but whatever. Anyways, in the classroom, she befriends Helen, who's like this really intense but so sweet girl, and they become best friends. And as they're taking attendance, this new bad boy comes in, and his name is Slater. He doesn't talk to anyone. He writes his name on the piece of paper, 
And so we get to know that he's like, I don't know, like this really bad boy who's like silent, the silent is sexy type, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, there's a lot of in-between stuff before I get to my next song. <laughs> Um, without going through all the details, basically, um, they find out that the school is hosting a talent show and the winner is going to fly to California and be an extra in a movie with positive moral values. (laughs) And, um, Helen and Mary are just so excited to potentially win the talent show. And they decide that they are eventually going to try to be in it without Mary's grandmother's permission because Mary's grandmother is very insistent upon her being a businesswoman behind a desk. While Mary is trying to become a superstar and figuring out her life at the school and deciding if she's going to join the talent show or not and go against her grandmother's wishes, she has started working at the local like movie rental place. Um, like Hollywood movies or blockbuster and she is the rewind girl and she decided that this would help her become a superstar faster and so she ends up watching all these movies and of course the movies that stick with her the most she says are the movies like Carrie or Silence of the Lambs and so we see her throughout the movie like copying lines and then she also goes into these random monologues and tangents where she best feels that she can express herself through the 1985 blah 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 whatever movie um and that's actually how Misa recognized my movie mm-hmm. because of the scene where she is being asked for her 19th favorite made for tv movie bubble boy which I've never seen by the way have you seen that I have not seen it but I do know the very sad story behind it oh Okay, you'll have to tell me later. Okay. I mean, it's it's like one sentence. I can tell you right now if you want. Okay, okay, go. <laughs> I mean, it's one of John Travolta's earliest films, and he fell in love with the woman who plays his love interest. And she was actually sick. I think it was some kind of cancer, something terminally ill. And um, she actually died in his arms. Shut up. And that's why, like, when his son died, his son died in his arms, and everyone thought back to the boy in the plastic bubble because his co-star died in his arms, oh and they were in love. Oh, my God. But, yeah, there was, like, some real-life shit. Wow. hmm That is so tragic. So that girl who tells him to put his face against the plastic? Yep. Oh, man. Now I really want to watch it to see um what it's about because I do like when they repeat the lines so anyways Sky is the person who asked for this movie and Mary is just absolutely beside herself because she is finally talking to her crush and the next day after rewinding the movie and seeing him at her job her and Helen are outside walking and she does the robot she's practicing for her talent show because she is leaning more towards trying out um, and at lunch, she is approached by Skye, who says, Mary, I was watching you, and you've got some nice moves. And then Mary has this whole dance monologue in her brain to the song, Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now, by the CNC Music Factory. 
And this is one of my favorite scenes because it is absolutely ridiculous. The And it's a dance montage, which I love. So Sky, like I said, has approached her in the cafeteria and he says, may I have? And then he does the robot, this dance. And then everybody dances together to the robot and the song plays. And it's just epically amazing. And I think this is where my obsession with mobs, like flash mobs and like large dancing groups started. And that's all I want in my life. Like I would die happy, Misa, if I got that. Yeah, I I would love I would love for you to die happy. I would love for that to happen. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> so this song, Everybody Dance Now, is what every people usually refer to it as Everybody Dance Now. Um, is a hit song by the American dance group um TNC Music Factory. It was released in the late 1990s as their debut and lead single from the album Gonna Make You Sweat. Um, the song is sung by singer Martha Wash and rapper Freedom Williams. And I think this is one of those songs that just like everybody knows, or I feel like everyone should know. I definitely agree. I think everyone was born knowing this song. <laughs> right. Like, I think you just come out of the womb, like knowing this song, mm, right? Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. Mm, mm. Like, it doesn't matter what kind of genre you listen to, like, you know this song. You know this song. Yeah. Um, and partially, I think, because it's also used a lot of, like, sporting events. Yeah. It's a it's yeah. a very hype song. Like, yeah, I think it's it's got good vibes. It's got a good beat. It's Yeah, I think everyone feels good when they hear it. I agree. I agree. Um, so just a little bit of information about Martha, who does do the um, vocals. Um, she is actually a part of the original. So she first became famous or reached fame from being a part of a group called Two Tons of Fun, um, which was more like a disco type group. And then um, they did gain their own record deal after having three consecutive commercial, like consecutively commercial songs. Um, and then that duo was named the Weather Girls, which you guys may know is the band who sang It's Raining Men. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, and then somehow between, like, disco and then, like, super pop, she transitioned into house music, um, and she, that's when she became a part of the um, CNC Music Factory. Um, after she was labeled, like, unmarketable due to her weight, um, and there were some issues with the video because they had models lip-syncing her voice. Yep. I remember this is one of the, um, it was the 100 best, like one hit wonders of the nineties. And they talked about that scandal because in the video, it's like a skinny, attractive black woman. Yes, exactly. And, um, she, because of this, her identity was unknown. And then she was therefore actually denied credit and royalties for many of the songs that she recorded. And this was one of them. And this is the one that would have made her like the most money because it did become a platinum selling song. Man, that's fucked. I mean, I knew yeah. that they didn't use her image for the lip syncing, but I didn't know that they denied her like the royalties. Mm -hmm. That's a whole nother level of fucked. Yes. And so she was actually named, so Rolling Stone did a cover on it um, for the most famous unknown singers of the 90s. And she is considered the number one most famous unknown singer. And then she um, was ranked later on the 58th most successful dance artist of all time. So they did eventually go back and recognize her, but she had to fight for that. 
not cool that she had to fight that hard for it just because of her weight. That's ridiculous. Oh, yeah, you're right. Like, shit like that. I'm, And you know what? That's around the same time, like, the Millie Vanilli shit was happening. Exactly. Like, exactly. people were just getting away with crimes in the music industry. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. And they were going to come after her for her weight. No, ma'am. She could sing. She could sing circles around half those people. Mm-hmm. So, um, so she did also, the um, rap verse on there was performed by Freedom Williams who um, was better known, I'm sorry, his real name is Frederick B. Williams. He is an American rapper, singer, and songwriter who was the lead vocalist on CNC Music Factory's biggest hit. So he wasn't with them for all time either. Um, But of course, he had no problem getting recognition for his part. His most prominent rapping was done on the Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now for CNC, but he is in like some solo stuff that didn't really go very far. Um, he released that album, Freedom, like in 1993. Um, it did have a couple hits on there that went into that more like technotronic feel um, and what's called like black beat and dance or house, if you will. Um, there was one song that reached pretty high, I guess, on there on the um, Hot Dance Music Club play chart in 1993. Sorry, that's a lot to say. Um, and that is the song Voice of Freedom. Um, he did have a follow-up, Groove Your Mind, which reached number 33, but um, that was more like around UK because, you know, they're really popular in like the dance era dance songs, that whole like 90s, you know, like when you could turn on KRBE at nine and it was like all the techno at nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the block of music where it was like a certain genre. Yes, mm-hmm. that entire, that was actually kind of my favorite thing. Like ever. mandatory Metallica? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, God, I'm old. Rock 101, <laughs> K, LOL. I feel so old right now, it's not even funny. You know what? I'm going to be honest with you. I was just, right before we started recording, I was sitting around and I was like, you know what? Every now and then I tell myself, like, man, I'm old. But then I think, I got to watch wrestling before it became WWE. I got to watch wrestling when The Rock was still a wrestler. I got to watch wrestling when Austin was still, like, at the height of his career. Yeah. I was born at the exact right time. You know what? You're not wrong. You are not wrong. We did, uh, we got to experience some great things. I mean, we got to see when MTV had like actual music videos and VH1 had amazing, you know, uh, the top, the 80s where they did each year and the, you know, all of the one hit wonders and all of that stuff. And a lot of people didn't get to experience that. Yeah, we got the good 90s cartoons after school. Oh my God. God, yes. We were just talking about like all of the amazing like 90s sitcoms and how they just don't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that if that brings you some comfort, I know it did bring me some comfort. <laughs> it definitely you're, you're absolutely right. It 100% does bring me comfort. Um, so thank you for that. That makes me feel much better. We got to live in the 90s. <laughs> you're right. We got to live in the 90s, a little bit of the 80s and in the 90s. So um, this yeah. song, like Misa and I have said like numerous times, is just considered one of the most impactful and has a huge legacy in the dance song era of like all time. VH1 placed the song at number nine on its list of 100 greatest dance songs in 2000. And it's also number 36 on its list of 100 greatest songs of the 90s. 
in 2007. It has numerous alkylates, um, including, um, like I said, the 100 Greatest Dance Songs, the 7,500 Most Important Songs of 1944 through 2000, the 100 Greatest Songs of the 90s, the 100 Biggest 90s Dance Anthems of All Time, Before EDM, 30 Dance Track from the 90s that changed the game, 1001 songs you must hear before you die and 10001 you must download in 2005 the 101 greatest dance songs of the 90s and 2017 from buzzfeed the best 100 songs from the 1990s from thoughtco 1000 greatest songs of all time from max magazine the 25 best dance pop songs of all time from thoughtco us and the best billboard hot 100 number one song of the 90s from billboard that's a lot of information that is incredible but you know what also merited yes like like we've said not only is this song just ridiculously popular because of sports because of the sound because of the grooviness the dance everything i haven't even mentioned all of the movies that it's been in. So I tried to narrow it down to the ones that I was like, okay, like everyone has seen these movies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I chose the popular, the most popular ones that I could think of, and that includes Sister Act, Man of the House, Space Jam, Something's Gotta Give, Jarhead, Chicken Little, Kronk's New Groove, Old School, Evan Almighty, Pain and Gain, Superstar, Flushed Away, Madagascar, and Borat. Those are the movies. <laughs> it has also been <laughs> in several TV shows, including American Dad, 30 Rock, The Ellen DeGeneres Show, The Office, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, King of Queens, and of course, the Simpsons. That is correct. Homer's Phobia, 15th episode of the eighth season. Yes, ma'am. Which, for those of us who don't know, came out in 1997. <laughs> yeah, straight up middle of the 90s, right? Oh, yeah. When music was ripe and things were good. <laughs> am, I right? am I right? When we woke up on Saturday mornings to eat cereal and we had to be super quiet so we wouldn't wake our parents up. <laughs> Saturday morning cartoons on ABC. Right. So, I mean, and so I've done movies, I've done TV shows, but it's also been in commercials, including Applebee's, Target, Fabletics, and Pringles. It has also been in um, games, including the NBA 2K18, Just Dance 3, as well as Just Dance We 2. It was also performed in the 2010 Winter Olympics and the people who performed to it the ice dancers Tessa Virtue and Scott Moore ended up winning gold that's awesome and one more really fun fact before I get back to my movies how Misa and I said this movie this song has been like a sports anthem. There is a reason for that. It was released on an album, a compilation album called Jock Jams, Volume 1 in 1995. What else is on that album? Oh, God. It has um, like every song we know, okay? 
let's get ready to rumble, get ready for this, whoop, there it is, tootsie roll, it takes two, the power, YMCA, pump up the jam, like, oh, I mean. Okay, so that's a, that's a, you're sitting at a basketball game playlist. That's exactly. What that <laughs> that's what that is. <laughs> Or you're watching, I feel like every single one of those songs could be in Space Jam, though. Totally. Because it takes place on a basketball court. It does. Proving your point. It's like 65% of that movie is on a basketball court. Uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. So, uh, yeah. Um, so, and this song has been covered by a couple people, um, but no one who I thought was super notable, except for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which that was really cool. Interesting. So, um, it was done in 2010. I wasn't able to find a clip of it, but if you can, I would love to see that on the blog. Oh, challenge accepted. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. So, that covers my song um, for that amazing scene where they are all doing the robot together. And then my favorite part of that scene is they do the Mary, Joseph, Holy Ghost. And then, like, everyone does, like, these really random dance moves. And Mary, like, lifts up her dress and, of course, shows her underwear. <laughs> <laughs> and then the song kind of fades away and guys like mary are you okay and turns out she's doing the robot all by herself and she's like oh i'm sorry sometimes my low blood sugar makes me do weird things and so she is left looking like a fool once again in front of sky and of course her arch nemesis evian and the entire cafeteria um and you know everyone else of course is used to her antics but even her friend helen is looking at her like oh that's rough (laughs) 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 so but yes love that song love that scene great great all around so we move forward a little bit and um evian has realized that mary is going to be signing up for the talent show and she goes off on Mary and calls her like a dog and makes fun of her and like talks about her parents dying. And Mary does this great line like, why don't you go drink a bottle of yourself, Evian? Oh, my God. Yeah. And I love how Evian's friends are summer, autumn. <laughs> yes, Evian. <laughs> And then they start laughing, and she's like, oh, wait, wait, for, like, the line to her, like, insult to Mary. And, of course, Guy walks in and sees all this happening, and then he sees them break out into this fight, and Mary, like, punches her in the titties, and she's like, oh, my face. And then they just get in this ridiculous fight where they end up going into the priest's office, and... um. This part made me mad, though. Like, they they call Mary's grandmother, but I don't see them call Evian, Evian's family. Um, I really haven't. Oh, man, I need to watch this movie again. Is she rich? Did the parents pay them off? Probably, I think. Or maybe because she's, like, the cheerleader, captain, whatever. She basically gets away with whatever. They do tell her, like, you have to let Mary um, audition. But they call in Mary's grandmother specifically, talk about what she did and talk about like putting her on meds and the grandmother gets mad and I'm like rightfully so like you didn't say anything to the other girl because she's popular and pretty and she started it Mm -hmm. and that part always made me mad even when I was like a fifth grader watching this movie I was like that's not right Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) it's not right 
So Mary's grandmother ends up like calling her a star and she tells the father that Mary's like a young Elizabeth Taylor and Mary's just shocked because again, her grandmother has told her that she's going to be a businesswoman. She's going to sit behind a desk all day and she's going to be safe. They end up leaving the school. They get home and Mary's like, did you mean what you said? And she was like, no, I was just talking. And she's like, because I really want to be a star. And her grandmother's like, no, you're going to be a businesswoman. And she's like, you're horrible. And then we get the amazing scene where Mary slams the door over and over again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious growing up. I don't know why I thought this scene was so funny. But you're horrible. Slams the door. Horrible. Slams the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the grandmother finally comes up. And she tells Mary the reason why she wants her to be a businesswoman. And this is where we find out that Mary's parents were not savagely ripped apart by a school of hammerhead sharks like we thought. They were actually stumped to death in an Irish river dance contest. And it is very dramatic and bloody and quite a mess um and just again so ridiculous and the characters are so you know stoic and even though the death of her parents is absolutely hilarious because of the death they chose they maintain character so well and I remember thinking who thought of this death because this is insane (laughs) they were killed by being stomped to death by the backup dancers in their Irish river dance team. And Mary's like, oh, wow, like she understands. And, you know, then she decides after hearing everything from Helen, she decides that, you know what, she's going to go ahead and audition anyways, because why not? She deserves to. And this is after Sky has broken up with Evian and everyone thinks, or at least Helen and her little group of friends from the Catholic special ed group think that Mary is going to hook up with Sky. And so during the audition, Mary actually does really well. She sings a song, an acapella song, and we get to see all of these awesome auditions. Um, and then Evian sneaks up on stage after Mary's done. And pulls a carry and drops a whole paint can of blue paint all over her. And says the line that Misa likes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so heartbreaking because, like, the paint is all over her. And Evian comes out from the wing and she's like, you said you like the movie Carrie. How do you like it now, Mary? And, of course, stupid-ass Tom Green's character, Dylan makes this annoying, like, ugh, I can't. This scene this scene actually makes me really sad. This scene is very, but I like how it ends. <laughs> yes. So it's all of the other audience, like, riled up because for their auditions, like, everyone's watching them. Um, and Helen tries to get them to shut up, but Mary runs off. And Mary runs out of the school with the father chasing her and of course it turns out that Slater is on his motorcycle waiting. Mary looks back at the father and then dramatically she runs to the motorcycle, hops on and they ride away together to the song Sister Christian by Night Ranger. 
this song is like honestly one of my like I'm gonna stop saying guilty pleasures but one of my pleasures that I love like <laughs> in regards to power ballads um and this song came out in March 1984 it is the second single from the Night Ranger album Midnight Madness it did go on to rank number 32 on VH1's 100 greatest songs of the 1980s and fun fact, it was actually written and sung by the band's drummer, which we don't hear very often. I thought that was a cool fact. Um, and this song was written for his sister who was like going through, um, I guess kind of like puberty. Like he was just thinking back on like how fast his sister had grown up and he was inspired to write the song for her. So kind of weird, but you know, whatever. <laughs> I did not get that from listening. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, well, um, her name was actually Christy. So that's kind of where Christian came from. And then it was his sister. Um, so I don't know. And I think he, I mean, I don't know. To me, it's not necessarily like a song written about a sister. Um, because it does have, I guess the part that sticks out to me is the, what's your price for flight and finding Mr. Right? And I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily like uh, a sweet, like looking back moment on your sister. There, there's some interesting choices made in the lyrics. Right? Okay. I'm glad that we're talking about this because while this is one of my favorite power ballads, when I realized it was about a sister, I was like, that's weird. Let me look at these lyrics right now. Let me see this. <laughs> Take a look at this. Okay, and while you're doing that, um, this it was the band's biggest hit, peaking at number five on the Billboard Hot 100, and it did actually stay on the charts for 24 weeks. It also reached number one in Canada, and um, this song has been um, in a couple other movies, including Boogie Nights and the 2009 reboot of Friday the 13th. Did you look it up? I'm realizing now, like, this is one of those songs that, I pretty much only ever tune in to the chorus and really didn't listen much to the verses, evidently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say your thoughts. It's a, no, it's a great song. I just, I guess I, I, this is, I know you said it's one of your favorites, but to me, this is like a very background song. I think I've heard it, aside from being in this movie, I think I've maybe heard it twice in my life. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but the, I guess I always kind of thought of this as like a open road song. Like you're you're okay. listening to this and you're alone in your car with your windows down in the middle of New Mexico and you're in between point A and point B kind of shit. I can totally see that because I think that motoring was used as like a synonymous term for cr like cruising, you know, like we're cruising, right. you know. And yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I I think that without knowing the context, like without knowing that it was for his sister – this has just been one of those songs. And, of course, I have to thank my dad for that because um, my dad loves this song as well. And that's the reason why I think this is one of my favorites because of him. Um, but when, again, when I just – I don't feel like it's a brother song. Like, it's not a brother song for a sister. That's a really good – yeah, that sums it up. I agree. <laughs> I'm glad we agree. <laughs> mm -hmm. Definitely. 
So yeah, um, so this song, like I said, it did fare well. Um, and just a little bit more info about Night Ranger. They are an American hard rock band from the San Francisco area, and they were formed in the um, 70s, 1979. Um, but again, they didn't gain their popularity until the 80s with a series of different albums and singles. Their first five albums sold more than 10 million copies worldwide, and they've sold over 17 million albums total, which is really cool because I don't consider them to be like super, super popular. Like they're not, um, you know, they're not like, you know, the Rolling Stones, you know, or Sticks or Chicago, you know what I mean? From that mm -hmm. era. Mm -hmm. um, but they are very, very well known for their power ballad, Sister Christian, um, which did, like I said, peak at number five in June of 1984. Um, they ultimately split up in 1989 with some of their members going on to pursue like other music endeavors, including different groups and solo efforts. Um, Brad Gillis and Kelly Keegy, the one who did write Sister Christian with the bassist Gary Moon, um, kind of released a, a trio album. They used to be the five. Um, and they released a trio album in 1995, which was quite some time after they first, you know, created the band. Um, and then they've actually recently reunited and they have been touring and releasing two new albums since that time. So they're still very much in the game. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. So they took a hiatus. Actually, they took a hiatus for quite some time um from like the mid 80s to 90s to 1995 and then they have been together ever since as a trio and they are touring and writing new albums and stuff so I mean I think that's awesome that we're seeing these like 70s and 80s bands coming back together after all these different hiatus um or you know solo groups and just coming back and showing that you can still rock out after all these years Hell yeah. And coexist, which is really important. Yeah, because actually I think the egos is what causes the break in so many bands that we might have grown up with, you know? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Especially, I don't know what it was about the 70s and the 80s, but maybe it's because of like it was a the emergence of music TV. But like musicians really like blew their heads up back then. They did. It was, I think it had a lot to do with drugs. And I think that there was a big change in um, royalties and payments. Because I mean, growing up thinking of like, my dad told me how much like concert tickets were, you know, like they were like 16 bucks, okay, to go right. see like, big bands. And I mean, we were looking at tickets the other day, and it was over $100 for like a small venue. Mm -hmm. outside <laughs> yeah with lawn seats so I oh mean, you talking about that rocky <laughs> horror shit we were looking at <laughs> that but then deftones too remember because deftones were going to be at whitehall also yeah dude and like i remember i i told i think i told you i was like i don't love them as much as you do i can sit that one out i just I just don't, like, the White Oak Lawn isn't even that big. If you had the Woodlands Lawn, sure, maybe, fine, okay. But absolutely not. Like, the people next door in the neighborhood have a bigger lawn than that. You are a thousand percent correct. I mean, the Woodlands is Cynthia Mitchell's. That's, that's a lawn, okay? This is, like, a townhouse side. Exactly. And then, like, the Woodlands, like, yeah, it's far. 
but at least like you know that grass is treated and lawn tickets are like 20 bucks yeah and like you can smoke your weed out there (laughs) like there's just too many benefits to it for so cheap and fucking white oak 150 200 bucks for some fucking so i bring my own chair fuck off yes and like you said it's surrounded by residential area so it's it's crazy to me but i think that that caught that with the you know rise in more of the um hallucinogen type drugs which causes you to be a little bit more arrogant a little bit more of an asshole a little bit more um where you're constantly like on edge those types of drugs and the payment and things like that with the fame i think that really got to a lot of those bands heads so they did end up breaking up because of their ego but they were able to come back together and realize you know the music is what they're there for so great things for night ranger and um this song is just so sweet in this scene because we see mary writing off with uh, Slater and they end up at a pool and while they are at the pool Mary's like will you talk to me like just say something to me and he doesn't say anything at first but he pulls his shirt down and she's like your birthmark looks like shit and then it just all comes back to her and she was like oh, you're the boy I saved and So they end up getting to talking and we realize that Slater actually has a stutter. And so instead of being made fun of for his stutter, he's decided to just stay silent and let people create like all of these ridiculous, crazy synopsis of what he's done and why he's silent, which kind of reminds me of 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, it reminds me of 10 Things I Hate About You, but it reminds me also of the cowboy that Janine Garofalo likes in Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh, yeah. Because at the end, when he finally talks, he says like, oh, I had a really bad stutter. So I just, I, I don't think, I don't think I spoke more than two words the entire time in high school. Yeah. And, and he was like dark and brooding. And fun fact, he was played by Justin Theroux. Oh, really? Yeah, Jennifer Aniston's ex-husband. I didn't realize that. Mm, I think he's so handsome. I need him to star as CM Punk in a CM Punk biofilm. Ooh. Isn't it perfect? Yes, it really is. I'm seeing it now. Because even CM Punk, I don't think, would want to play himself. (laughs) He doesn't even want to be CM Punk. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Side notes. So fun, so fun. Yes, yes. And I love, I love... The Slater character, by the way. Can we gush about him? Oh for a minute? my gosh, can we? He's like oddly cute. Oh, he's adorable. I love Harlan Williams. I think he's so he's just like that, um, like that best friend. Like he makes me think of like Ducky. You know what I mean? Um, like that best friend, that guy who's like always gonna be there for you. And Mary does kind of like friend him like that. You know, like, do you think Sky would want to kiss me? And he's like, I think Sky would be crazy to not want to kiss you he tells her she's the most beautiful girl like he's just gushing over her oh my gosh and I remember like I think it's so cute when he tells her that and then like like he drives her home or whatever and she's like do you think Sky would want to kiss me and you see it kind of hurts him that she's asking about Sky 
guy instead. Stops. Yeah, like you can see it on his face. And instead of being like an asshole and writing her off, he answers her. And he like built her up because he wants, like, it's like her happiness is more important. Yeah. Oh, it's so sweet. It yeah. Is. Harlan Williams is awesome. Like, for those of you who may not remember him, he's the guy who drank the piss in Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and he's Rocket Man in that 90s Rocket movie, Man. Rocket Man. <laughs> who, by the way, my acting coach was in that movie. And uh-huh. he said that the stunt double for the monkey was Vern Troyer. What? Yeah, I'm spitting out the fun facts today, guys. Oh, my gosh. I love that you have these fun facts. So. <laughs> in my back pocket <laughs> with my rubber and my glue. I know, right? <laughs> Put that in your back pocket. <laughs> Stick that in your pipe I and smoke, smoke it. it. <laughs> yes. Gladly. Here we go. I love it. I love it. I love it. So this sweet moment happens. Mary gets inside And the grandmother's like, the school called, you made the talent show, but they want you to lose the paint spot. And um, then they go into hardcore training for the talent show. And so Mary has her friend from her new classroom join her, and they are kind of like her chorus line. And this is one of my favorite lines with the grandmothers, because she was like, we've got two days and... You know, when I say jump, you want to jump. When I say booga booga, you want to booga booga. And one of the girls is like, what's that? She's like, I don't know. But when I say it, you better fucking figure it out. <laughs> I'm like, yes. Um, so they are practicing hardcore. They're learning all their dance moves and everything. And it is finally the night of the talent show. And nerves are high. The whole chorus line is like, we don't want to go. They're going to make fun of us. Mary gives this amazing pep talk. We get this really awkward scene about VD and girls have a button and boys have a pole and wicked touching takes its toll. (laughs) (laughs) Which cracks me up. Did you teach your kids that? (laughs) No. Because what? (laughs) Anyways, the night of the talent show has come, and they are raising money for VD and the fiery pits of death, you know. But until then, we're going to have fun and do the talent show, and we see all the fun, different talents from all of the students in the school. And, of course, right before Mary's performance, it is Sky and Evian's turn. And Sky goes up on stage, and he says, you know, even though we're dancing together, we are broken up. Broken up. And Sky and Evian dance together to Bamboleo by the Gypsy King. So this song, I didn't realize was as old as it is. Um, I had no idea that this song came out in 1987 i for some reason i guess i thought it was a 90s song and i don't know why i think 1987 is so much older than that (laughs) because our perspectives of time are all fucked now they really are they really are i was like oh wow this song is old and i was like oh god it's only two years older than me take this out 
I constantly have to remind myself that we are in 2021 because I don't even feel like we got to 2020. Yeah, that just didn't even happen. Like, And I'm like, what year is it? (laughs) (laughs) I just jumped out of Jumanji. What year is it? (laughs) I don't know anymore. No one knows. I'm sorry. Go on. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Who rolled a five or an eight? (laughs) You suck. So... This song came out in 1987. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I threw you off. That's my bad. This is on me. Now I'm like, God, I'm so old. No, we are not old. We watched Batman when we got home from school. <laughs> Batman the Animated Series. We had real childhoods, and we experienced life without phones. Yeah, we used to go outside. All outside time. in the sun. Not anymore, but we used to. So <laughs> let me tell you. Oh, man. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. So, anyways, Bombaleo came out in 1987, and it is a Spanish-language song by Gitano French Band. Um, called the Gypsy Kings from their album that was called Bombaleo. The song was written by band members Tonino Baliaro, Chico Buchiki, and Nicholas Reyes, and it was arranged by Dominique Perrier. No relation to Perrier, the drink I looked it up. Um, and the song title basically translates to like wobble or swing or dangle in Spanish. Um, it is considered an iconic song because it is a worldwide hit for the Gypsy Kings and honestly one of the only songs that I really know by them. Um, so it's really, like I said, one of the only songs I know by them. Um, it has been covered by lots of other artists, both in Spanish and in other languages, and it's also been a part of like mashups and things like that. One of the song lyrics that I like roughly translates to like swaying, swaying because I prefer to live my life this way. And it's just kind of one of these fun, like dancey, very, I mean, it definitely is like a very Spanish song, but I feel like it has more dance to it. I don't know how to explain myself here. Well, the reason I think so is because it is, like I said, it's in Spanish, but it does kind of have more of that like 80s dance electric feel and so I feel like that's why it is so popular and again why I didn't think it was um as wonderfully aged as it is so this song has been covered quite a bit um and it has been um adapted to other songs some of the most popular versions um were covers by uh, Celia Cruz, Julio Iglesias. Um, there's a Gypsy Teens, which is kind of like a Spanish, um, like revamping teen bands to Gypsy, Gypsy Kings. What? Which are like S Club 17s? Oh my God. <laughs> we just go there because, yes. Girl, we are transported into the 90s. I'm wearing my platform sketchers. Oh my god, shut your face. And I you have, have this glitter eyeshadow on and your little butterfly clips in My butterfly hair. clips with my crimped hair. It's oh freshly crimped. It's still very warm. My head is very hot. I got my choker. Yes. 
Yes. yes. And I my dark it. lipstick with my even darker lip liner. Oh my gosh. Yes, queen. 90s. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so this song has also been covered by um, one of a more popular version was a Finnish folk metal band called, oh, I'm going to mess this up. Inspirium. And I really want you to post this one on the blog because it is like a metal version of this song. Oh, your dream come true. My dreams. <laughs> I love it. Um, this song was also included in a Glee episode called The Spanish Teacher. And it was a mashup of this with um, Enrique Iglesias' Hero. Um, and it was sang by uh, Sam Evans on the show. And then it was also included in an Umboza song um, called Sunshine in the UK. It has been used in a lot of other pop culture references, including um, Nintendo Wii and then the Peanuts movie with Snoopy dancing, as well as the um, really cute movie called Sing, where Rosita the little pig dances to this at the supermarket. It's actually one of my favorite scenes in there. Super cute. So this song is super popular because of that. And uh, even though I don't know much about the Gypsy Kings, I did want to share just a little bit. Um, they are a flamenco, salsa, and pop band from um, Arles and Montpierre in south of France area. And they, they're, so they're actually um, from southern France. And they do speak French and Spanish there. And so they combine those in their songs and so parts of this song actually do have some French words in it which I thought was cool. They are known for bringing a rumba flamenca or adding pop details and pop music into the traditional flamenco music and again I think that's what I was trying to explain not so well in why this song is so popular. And I think that's it. The only other thing that I like, I don't know many other songs from them, but I did look them up. Um, and a couple other songs that I thought were kind of cool. Um, Misa, they actually did a cover of Hotel California and it was featured in The Big Lebowski. Oh, okay. Okay. And I've heard great things about that soundtrack. Yes. And I know, I know that you're not a huge fan of Toy Story for a very appropriate reasons. But they actually did a cover of You Got a Friend in Me in Spanish for Toy Story 3. Oh, well, that's okay because that's Randy Newman's song. Yeah. So I, yeah. Randy, I think Randy mostly got paid for that. <laughs> um, that's cool. That's an indirect. So it's, it's, it's a very cool, so, I mean, I guess I didn't realize how much, like, I knew some of their songs or, like, how their songs had been in pop culture. So, I mean, they're, they're very popular, very well known, um, and I kind of feel like I've been living under a rock for not knowing more about them. Yeah, I definitely, I, I knew even less, so I feel like now I need to check them out. Yeah, so I'm excited to these covers the blog and see, yeah, some of their covers. I thought it would be fun to put that up there, so... So this song is the perfect dance song for Sky and Evian. They do a fantastic routine, super wonderfully choreographed. And it is during this time that Mary realizes, you know, there are going to be tough competition. But she also decides to go to the confessional and confess 
to the father that she has been selfish in her praying and asking God to make her a star every day. Um, and then tonight, she just wants God to get her through her dancing safely so that she doesn't die like her parents, um, which is very sweet, but then also super comical because that just takes you back to how her parents were stomped to death. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so it's a super sweet moment. And um, but she does. She says, like, please just let me get through tonight. Um, and of course, she does get through the night. There is an issue where the song does speed up super, super fast because the stupid nun hits it and Mary does end up falling. But Sky God comes down and tells her, get up, Mary. And of course, uh, Slater, who, because he's crushed by Mary, not wanting to be with him, but wanting to be with Sky tries to leave, but God shows him that he needs to turn around and go back to the talent show. Oh ends up God, there. Yes. I'm working in mysterious ways here. No, I love it when God shows up <laughs> and he's like, um, he's like, who are you? Who are you? And he's like, oh, I'm a Mary's vision of Jesus. And he's like, okay. <laughs> the way he looks at him and says it. I rewound that shit many times as a child. <laughs> okay <laughs> and jesus is like okay okay and he explains it really calmly <laughs> the best shit i can't <laughs> i need to rewatch this movie he is, he's like what am i on right <laughs> he's like so leaving town didn't work out got you freaked out and then and he's like, I'm trying to work in mysterious ways here. He's like, so why don't we take that energy and put it into something, you know, I don't know, maybe help me out here. And Slater's just like, uh, he's like, Mary, I'm talking about Mary. And so he ends up turning around. And of course, he gets there at the talent show just in time to see Mary pick herself up, finish the talent show. And she does end up winning. And in doing so, she then shows up to Evian and she's like, I'm sorry, I guess you just didn't know that you were going against a superstar. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful, interesting scene. Sky does end up kissing Mary and she is not thrilled. And then Slater kisses her and she is just head over heels with him. They end up dating, but uh, Mary ends the movie by breaking up with the tree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, the tree ends up asking her for, you know, one more kiss for the road. And she obliges. <laughs> That's how we end our movie. <laughs> Perfection. And that is it in a nutshell. So that is Superstar. Um, just a couple of fun facts that we didn't cover um during the movie and I actually had to go back and rewatch this because I didn't even pick up on this but um every car that's seen in the movie with the exception of the opening sequence is either a lime green or a black new style Volkswagen Beetle interesting and I could not find out why <laughs> I looked it up um I even 
I actually listened to um, a podcast, a different podcast called um, Behind the Hype to get a lot of information or to try to get more information. And they they didn't even really have a reason as to why. So I don't know if maybe they were, um, I don't know if Lauren maybe had like a an agreement with Volkswagen or maybe NBC did at that time. So just, you know, fun, fun, random fact. If you guys know why, please share. Um, I, I know I already talked basically about this, but I did want to say that just that um, Mary has actually been around since 1975 when Molly was in college. I didn't say that earlier. Um, this was the final appearance of Moira um, in the film. The director, Bruce, who I talked about earlier, um, asked that Summer, one of Evian's friend, um, she did have like a couple piercings. And uh, she said that he told her that she couldn't wear them in the film because he didn't think that a true Catholic schoolgirl would have them. But um, the girl who played Summer actually attended Catholic schools and told him how awful Catholic schoolgirls are in real life. And so they got to bring a little bit of that nastiness into the film. And that's why we see a little bit of rudeness from Summer and Autumn. Um, Will Ferrell, Molly Shannon, and Mark McKinney all appeared in Night at the Roxbury, which is our other favorite SNL spinoff. And my last fun fact was that Artie Lang, who is known from um, Elf and the Jim Gaskin show, um, Amy Schumer, he was on Mad TV, he auditioned for Sky as did David Faustino, who we all know from Married with Children. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting choice. Isn't that? Oh, wait, I'm lying. I do have one more. Molly and Jennifer actually both appear in um, Bad Teacher in 2011. So I thought that was cool. And I didn't realize that Jennifer Irwin, who plays Maria, is who she is because she looks so damn different in this movie. Here, but uh, the devil speaks obviously, and that is it. Awesome! Oh, good movie, good feels. Yes, fun times, fun times. All of it. Yes, yes, yes. Awesome job! I loved it. Good songs. I I thoroughly enjoyed the music in this movie. Um, and again, I know this movie is not for everyone, so I apologize if you think that this is just absolute trash but um, yeah sorry that you're not in the cool kids club guys <laughs> um but i mean it, it's just i i needed this movie i needed this movie i hear you so. i totally understand yeah good good choice great choice Ding. once again uh awesome choice frankie i <laughs> i rewatched superstar after we recorded that first part i had to <laughs> i love it i love I that should. you were up watching it <laughs> I literally, like, 1 a.m., I cracked up, and I was like, oh, shit, did anyone hear me? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, classic. Okay, so now it's my turn. And uh, before I start anything, I have to get this out of the way, because I have forgotten to do this the past two episodes, and I have felt awful. <laughs> so I just want to rectify this one thing. I want to give a quick shout-out and a super huge thank you to my friend Wes, he started making custom shirts of like horror movie VHS stacks. 
and he designs them himself. He does all the Photoshop, and then like you just order your shirt. You pick whatever ten movies you want, and he makes the image for you. And then you order the shirt, or you order whatever merch you want it on, right? So I wanted to thank him for my shirt. Um, I think I think I bought it back in like February, mm-hmm. maybe. And I I'm supposed to like take a selfie with it and tag him so he can like you know get the word out and stuff. And I kept telling him like, oh, I'm gonna thank you on the podcast. And then I kept forgetting because I'm an idiot. So <laughs> thank you, Wes, for my shirt. It is so super comfy. I don't think you're particularly responsible for the fabric. But I just want to say the fabric is a plus. And uh, you got my top 10 horror movies perfectly. So thank you for that, too. And um, I'll put his link in the blog or, like, Instagram or whatever. And you guys can check out what he does and give him a follow and order your horror VHS stack shirts, too. That is badass. I love it. I'm looking right now absolutely loving the shirts. He actually got the idea because the shirts are kind of like, they're becoming, I don't know, I think they're going up in popularity, but the thing is, like, they weren't custom anywhere that he found. Like, he was finding a lot of, like, pre-made stacks or, like, they were specifically for series, so it would be, like, Halloween 1 through 10 or Friday 13th 1 through 10 or something like that. Um, so he just kind of thought, like, oh, I'm going to make custom ones and people could just pick what they want. Yeah. And I love that idea. It's so much better. <laughs> um, I am super interested to know if he would be willing to do like a Disney VHS or even like, I mean, is it just horror? I know if that's his jam, then I'm totally okay with that. But like, I would be interested in like a Disney stack or even like my favorite musicals or even just like my favorite movies. I mean, I could always ask him. You never know. Um, I do know that when it came to some of the some of the specific movies that I wanted on the on the shirt, mm-hmm. he actually had them on hand and took a photo of them and then edited them into the image. So I, I know that because he's a big horror aficionado, he's got a lot of horror. I don't know if he'd be able to do the same for Disney and musicals, but who knows? He has kids. Um, I can also supply those because I do have a huge amount of Disney VHSs. Okay. I mean, maybe I sent him my picture of my psycho because when he did the original image, I was like, I like it, but I have a VHS of psycho and I want it to look like mine. So I sent him a picture of mine and that's what he used. You're adorable. <laughs> so, you know, you know me, if, if it's going to be for me, it's going to have like some specific details. Of course, of course, as it should. So way to go, Wes. I can't wait to see Misa's shirt. It already sounds fabulous. I'm super excited. Yes, I love my shirt. It's awesome. Okay, um, so now I can get into my movie. <laughs> Thank you again, Wes. Um, so... Lately, I've been feeling really uninspired, and I'm going to have a little soapbox here before I go into my movie, because I feel like I I don't necessarily need to explain why I chose this movie, but I want you to understand my thought process behind it, if that's okay. Of course. So, lately, I've just been feeling really uninspired. Um, I don't know. I think my depression is doing this weird thing where I'm becoming a little more social as things get safer, but I also, at the same time, want to do less somehow. Um, like I want to write every day, but I cannot physically bring myself to do it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to pick a soundtrack, 
but nothing called out to me. And of course I have a list of movies that I eventually one day, someday want to cover, but even reading through it, like nothing was really pulling me. Nothing was just like, yes, that's the one. Nothing, I didn't zero in on anything. And so I just kind of went on cruise control and I decided like, okay, I'm not going to think about it too hard. I'm just not going to think about it. Other things to focus on at the moment. So, you know, soundtracks were kind of not in the forefront of my mind. Obviously, last month was April, and April began, as it usually does for me, with all the WWE Hall of Fame and WrestleMania hype. And so this year, I was actually brought to tears because my hero was finally inducted into the Hall of Fame. And after I had to sit through watching people like Tori Wilson and the Bella twins get inducted. I was so ready to see my favorite, my top female wrestler of all time go into the Hall of Fame. And finally, this year, she did. Molly Holly is a WWE Hall of Famer. That is so exciting. I, like, when I was an awkward little kid, instead of this awkward adult, I (laughs) adored Molly Holly. I loved her. I loved her. I still love her. Deep within my soul, there is love for Molly. And I I was watching when she debuted in WWF. And um, I didn't actually watch it in person, though, fun fact, I could have because she debuted as Molly at a Raw in Houston at the Compact Center. Oh my gosh, wow. Yep, and yeah, and like, I at the same time, like in retrospect, I'm like, man, I kind of wish I'd been there. But then again, I'm glad I didn't. A, because like The Rock was my favorite at the time. And that's the same episode where somebody attacked him backstage. And so he didn't actually wrestle. And I would have been crushed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but also B, my first ever wrestling event, WWE event, pay-per-view, wrestling show, etc. All that, all the above. My first one ever was WrestleMania 17. And I'm okay with that. Right. I'm sure that one has great memories for you. Yeah. Plus it's like the greatest WrestleMania of all time. So <laughs> there's also that. My admiration for her really, really grew on the SmackDown Thanksgiving episode in the year 2000 because on that episode of SmackDown, she actually wrestled Trish Stratus before Trish was like officially even a wrestler. She was still just a valet. And Molly had this great match with her and Molly won. And it was the first time that she did her finishing move, which was the Molly go round, which is basically a somersault in midair. And then she lands on her for the pin. Uh, Like she jumps off the top rope and it's awesome. And like, I really didn't have a favorite female wrestler before that. On that day, Molly became my favorite and she has always remained there. And like when I was, I remember when I was a kid, like, All I wanted was for Molly to be WWE Women's Champion. And then she did it. And then as an adult, all I wanted was for Molly to be in the Hall of Fame. And she did it. And it's like, I was so happy. And like, I recently found out that they actually made Hall of Fame shirts for everyone. And I'm not shitting you. When I saw Molly's, I cried. Right. <laughs> I just like burst into tears and I just sat at my computer for like five minutes and I just cried because I'm like, 
21 years. Like I have been a fan of her for 21 years and she hasn't even been active that whole time. And man, she deserved better. Holy shit. She deserved so much better than what she got. And I just wanted it all to pay off for her, you know? Yes. That is, was her shirt, like, did it do her justice? Was the shirt, did every person have a different Hall of Fame shirt? They're more or less the same as far as design, but everyone kind of has like their own flair on it. Like I'm sitting next to mine right now. Okay. Um, and it's like, it's it's her in the middle with her name. And then on the back is like all of her accomplishments. And I just love it. I want to buy two more, one to frame and one to sleep in because like I just love <laughs> her so much and I'm so happy for her. And I've just been like, I was, I've just been indulging in all of her interviews and all her past matches. And I just, I just love her. I love Molly. And I thought it was so cute that you chose Superstar. You're gushing about Molly Shannon. And now I want to gush about my Molly. I love it. I love that we always have some kind of similarity or something that's the same. It's just every single time without fail. I love it. I love it. So I know you guys are probably wondering like, what does this have to do with your soundtrack, Misa? Like, shut the fuck up. Get to the point. (laughs) Here's the point, guys. I felt a little miffed when her career retrospective did not mention a very important and I think probably the most fun storyline that she was ever involved in. In the summer of 2001, Molly Holly met Spike Dudley and they were so fucking cute, legit the cutest couple ever in wrestling, in my opinion. And yes, that does count, Randy and Elizabeth, so fuck off. (laughs) I loved Spike and Molly. If you ever want to see Misa turn into mush, show me a Spike Dudley, Molly Holly segment. Holy fucking crap. So fucking cute. And so that brings me to my soundtrack because as most of us may know, Spike was a member of the Dudleys, Molly was a member of the Hollies, Mm -hmm. and so more or less, they were two households, both alike in dignity, not necessarily in Fair Verona, where they laid their scene, but (laughs) from ancient grudge break to new unity, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. Spike and Molly were the Romeo and Juliet of wrestling. And so, because I was so enthralled with Molly and I was re-watching all her matches and all my favorite episodes of hers, I went through like a nice little <laughs> rabbit hole of Spike and Molly content. I spent about a week re-watching their entire storyline over and over and over. And finally, I was like, now I know what soundtrack I want to do. Aww. I have to. I had to. So today we are going to talk about Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. Love it. I will be honest. You you threw me off with the trilogy. I did not know that this is technically a part of the trilogy with Moulin Rouge. And Strictly Ballroom. The only reason I know that is because I had to look it up. And I recently talked to you about Strictly Ballroom. You did. Have you watched it? No. Uh, so I haven't been in. Where did you watch it? I mean, I 
it's high school. <laughs> I can't remember what streaming site it was on fairly recently. I know I've rewatched it within the past year and it's it's fantastic. I, I first saw Strictly Ballroom in my senior year because Mr. Yarbrough made up a whole class about watching movies. And so that's what we would do. We would watch movies and take notes. And he chose to show us Strictly Ballroom. And it was like amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, today we're talking about Romeo and Juliet. And I actually first saw this movie my freshman year of high school because my English teacher was teaching us Romeo and Juliet, and he actually had us watch the original one from the 60s and then this one from 1996. And so we would rotate between both and kind of compare and see how they how they did with the language as far as filmmaking, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I instantly love this movie. And uh, English class is actually where I met Steffi. And so Steffi and I have memories of like the Romeo and Juliet unit. And I was randomly texting her kind of about it, but not really. And that's how she was able to guess it. I'm pretty sure I I gave her a few more clues than others would have gotten. So, you know, (laughs) this is exactly the kind of remake that I love. You know, it stays true to the source material, but it's also letting it play a role in the modern new take. And I think that Boz Lerman did an amazing job of translating this like classic play into something that like every audience from the modern era can enjoy. Right. He made it relevant and made it more relatable. Exactly. Um, do you have a favorite line from Romeo and Juliet? Ooh. Um, I, I don't know if I do. Uh, it has been, probably since high school that I have truly watched Romeo and Juliet and we had to like redo Romeo and Juliet in high school in modern day talk and you know act it out in class and I I don't think I've watched it since then gotcha um I don't know why I mean there are there are a few lines that always stuck out to me but I think the one that always stuck with me the most is when she realizes that she's fallen in love with a Montague and she says, my only love sprung from my only hate. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, but I really like that line. So any Hooters, um, like we mentioned before, this Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet is the second film in Boz Lerman's Red Curtain trilogy. The first film was Strictly Ballroom, which is an awesome film. I recommend it to everyone. It was made in 1992. And then the third is, of course, Moulin Rouge. And if you go back and watch all of those in order, or you don't even have to watch them in order, it's not necessarily the characters that tie them together so much as it is the style, the themes, and the motif. So you'll notice a lot of similarities across those three films. Great. Uh, Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet are great. I definitely still need to watch the other one. So I'm working. Yeah. This movie just makes me wish I didn't know the ending because it's so well acted and beautiful. Like you want to go home happy. Like, yeah, they're stupid kids, but you know, they hoped that their union would make things better. So it's like, they, you know, they had, they had the right idea. You know what I mean? So before I move on, some of the sources that I used include, and some of these are going to be pretty specific. So uh, some of my sources were IMDb, the DVD commentary, nerd study on YouTube, Video Spark Notes, music.avclub.com, whosampled.com, Todd in the Shadows, The Selena Scott Show, The Making of Love Fool Music Video, 
spoiler, uh, an Australian interview with the Cardigans in 1997, Spotify behind the lyrics, Blender Magazine, GreenPlastic.com, and Diffuser.fm. So I can definitely tell some of your songs. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is one of those movies that I always hear people talk about the soundtrack. Whenever this movie comes up in conversation, somebody mentions the music because the music on its own is amazing. Oh, 100% agreed. I've loved this film ever since I saw it. I'm a huge fan of Baz Luhrmann. So, and plus, like, I told Frankie before, I was like, I want something that makes me laugh, but also something that will allow me to wallow in my own (laughs) self-pity. And then I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't like love stories, but at least I know everybody dies in the end. So that's okay. (laughs) Anywho, uh, so this movie was directed by Baz Luhrmann, and the screenplay was written by Baz Luhrmann and Craig Pierce. The original play was, of course, written by William Shakespeare, and this film was released in the U.S. on November 1st, 1996. We have quite the loaded cast here, so I'm going to go through those really fast. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Romeo Montague. Claire Danes plays Juliet Capulet. John Logazamo plays Tybalt, who is a Capulet. Harold Perino plays Mercutio. Pete Postlewaite plays... Father Lawrence, Paul Sorvino plays Fulgencio Capulet, Diane Venora plays Gloria Capulet, Brian Denny plays Ted Montague, Christina Pickles plays Caroline Montague, Paul Rudd plays Dave Paris, Vondi Curtis Hall is Captain Prince, Miriam Margulies is the nurse, and Jesse Bradford, a very young Jesse Bradford, is Balthazar. And they were all so young. Man, every time I rewatch this, I just, I feel like Leonardo looks like such a baby. And this wasn't even like the beginning of his career. Like he was a kid when he started, you know? Yeah, yeah. This was not the beginning of his career. Yeah, so it's like, it's cool to see like, oh my God, that's the freaking Gilbert Grape kid. Yes. (laughs) And he looks so scrawny because it's so, so early. Like, oh man, it's crazy. Um, he, well. he is aging well and it's kind of crazy to think when you watch back on this and you're like man dude like that guy went on to do some epic ass films and he won an oscar <laughs> yes this was literally right before titanic so yeah so there's that the movie opens with a tv set and a newscaster is reciting the prologue And she's more or less describing the rivalry between the Capulets and the Montagues, which in this particular era, the two are actually rival mob bosses with, you know, um, what do you call it? Legitimate fronts, I guess you could call them. Mm -hmm. You know, they're both families of wealth and stature, but they hate each other. And so uh, this is Verona, (laughs) in a way, and we are introduced to our players. So, you know, we know uh, Juliet's parents, Romeo's parents, chief of police. Dave Paris is the governor's son. Mercutio is Romeo's best friend. And we immediately meet the Montague boys. And they end up having a face-off at the gas station with the Capulets. And it's so cool to see everything translated because instead of drawing swords, they draw guns, which there are some uh, similarities as far as terminology because some guns are named after swords, like daggers Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. 
Um, so they were using a lot of that imagery and uh, they all had their nameplates. And so they basically argue over whose house is superior. This is when we meet Tybalt and Benvolio. And Benvolio is Romeo's cousin. And Tybalt is Juliet's cousin. Benvolio wants to keep the peace, but Tybalt's like, no, peace? I hate the word, as I hate hell, all Montagues, and thee. And so they have this shootout at the gas station. Shit blows up. SWAT team gets rolled in. Everyone gets busted. And Captain Prince is, uh, he calls in both families into his office with Tybalt and Benvolio. And he scolds them. It's like, this is the third time that y'all have broken out in fight. You're, you're causing a bunch of civil unrest. Like, the community's not going to stand for it anymore. Like, they're fed up with them. This rivalry is spilling out into the streets. It's dangerous. And they're not having it. Mm-hmm. So then we switch from all this chaotic stuff in the beginning to some really warm, sunny, serene settings at the beach. When we finally meet Romeo for the first time and we hear Talk Show Host by Radiohead. We see Ted and Caroline Montague in their limo with Benvolio and Caroline saying like, oh, I'm so glad that Romeo wasn't here. Do you know where he was? Benvolio's like, yeah, I saw him earlier. Uh, he, he was crying on the beach, and that's the last time I saw him. And the parents are like, man, he's really been doing that a lot lately. Like, he really isolates himself. He, he's out all day, and then he doesn't come home until the sun comes up, and then he locks himself in his room. Then we see Romeo, and he's sitting on the beach, and he's writing poetry. And there's this, like, giant archway slash stage. It looks like it was, like, an abandoned theater mm-hmm. that – that was torn down everywhere but the stage almost. Um, And it's just sitting on the beach and it's among all the other little huts and businesses and chairs and shit. And Romeo's sitting there writing poetry and he's really sad. And he's like in this like suit and he's just kind of looking very forlorn. And so when the parents pull up on the beach, they see him and they convince Benvolio to go talk to him. Like, find out what's wrong with him. We want to know what's wrong with him. And so Benvolio's like, okay, I'll try. But, I mean, I don't know how much I'm going to get out of him. And so they drive off without a word. And Benvolio approaches Romeo as he sits on the merry-go-round. And he's like, hey, like, what's, like, more or less. Of course, I'm paraphrasing everything, guys. (laughs) How dare you not do it in Shakespearean? I thought about it, but then I was like, nobody really, <laughs> I feel like people are going to tune that out so fast. <laughs> and so so that's when Benvolio approaches Romeo and he's going to try to figure out like just why he is so sad. Floating upon the surface for the birds. The birds. So I've talked about Radiohead before. Have. Uh, and um, I'm going to talk about them again. So, Radiohead is one of the few bands that I've ever known whose lineup has never, ever, ever changed. Ever. It's a rare feat. It, it is very rare, isn't it? And so, just to review, guys, 
on lead vocal and acoustic guitars, we have Tom York. On electric guitar and synthesizer, we have Johnny Greenwood. Electric guitar and backing vocals is Ed O'Brien. Bass guitar is Colin Greenwood. And the drums, Bill Selway. So this track, Talk Show Host, was featured on the B-side. Of course. Of course. This was released as the B-side of the Street Spirit Fade Out single, which was released on January 22nd, 1996. Street Spirit Fade Out originally appeared on Radiohead's second album, The Benz, which was released on March 13, 1995. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of info to find on this song just because it is a B-side. And the version of this song featured on the soundtrack is called the Nelly Hooper remix. But I am choosing to focus on the original track in its original form because Nelly added some very unpleasant high-pitched noises on the song that I did not like. <laughs> like, I couldn't listen to them. I, I'm sorry. You're, I'll, I'll send some it very, to you. Some very unpleasant. I just like how you said it. Some very unpleasant noise that I did not like. <laughs> I just, I think it's so cute how you said it, but like you said it nicely. <laughs> in the nice, I in the nicest way that I could. In the nicest way, it was shit. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure she likes her remix. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. I, I mean. But I did not. I do not like it what she did. Yeah, she made a very bad it, That song was just fine. <laughs> that song was just fine before she fucked it up. So anyway, um, you will find the original song in its original form on our blog and on our playlist after this, by the way. Um, so uh, Radiohead first performed talk show host at a live show in Barcelona on May 22nd, 1997. And I was surprised to find that there are a couple of people who have covered this. Oh. And I'm like, I would be far too intimidated to cover a Radiohead song. I don't know about you. Uh, well, yes. Yes. Right? They don't follow, like, talking music theory with, like, bands like Radiohead or Deftones or, like, those are some of the bands that I think that, like, I would just never cover because they don't typically follow the music theory standards, and that makes it very hard to cover them well. I mean, that's true. They're, they're kind of, their style is to kind of go left when everyone else goes right. Right, right. Or let's find, like, the most – the weirdest way to make this work. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, and I think that's one of the most unique things about Radiohead mm -hmm. is that, like, they are literally dancing to the beat of their own drum. They don't conform to anything in the music industry. I don't even right. really pay attention to the music industry. I think they just do what they do with their sound and make money. 100% agreed. Yeah, like, they are not there to make anyone else happy except for themselves. And I find that another reason why I just found it, I was surprised that people covered it is because... Tom has such a distinctive voice, and they as a unit have such a distinctive sound. Like, if you take the Radiohead away from a Radiohead song, you don't have a Radiohead song anymore. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's just my opinion. I don't think Radiohead, anyone can do Radiohead better than Radiohead, and I don't think anyone should try. <laughs> Is right. Okay. No, I agree with you. They're just, it's so distinctive and so unique and just so their own um, that it's just, 
I mean, I hate to say it, but it's kind of like almost on a pedestal. I agree. I think that they are in a class of their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I am uh, interested to hear who covered this. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I found two different people who've covered it. Um, I've never heard of them. Maybe you have. But uh, two covers, two people who have covered talk show host include Crystal Dos Santos and Christopher O'Reilly. Oh, I can't. I can't say that I'm familiar with either of those. Okay. Yeah, I'll post them on the blog. And I did listen to them. They're okay. 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 They're, they're okay. <laughs> did they did they cover it and make it their own, or did they just like straight cover it? Crystal, she kind of gave it like a poppy. It's a little more upbeat. Hmm. Yeah, okay. if you can imagine that. So it's um, hard. It's hard. <laughs> right? That's what I'm saying. Like Radiohead songs need Radiohead. It, it's it's the emotion behind it also. It's it's his vocals and everything just that it's it's a whole package. It's a whole package. Yeah, agreed. And this is such a great song. Uh some of the lyrics that stick out I want to I want to be someone else or I'll explode. Floating upon the surface for the birds. You want me? Fucking well come and find me. I'll be waiting with a gun and a pack of sandwiches and nothing. God, I just, it's so deep. And I love how it's like, when you listen to it, the music is so seductive. It's like you're flirting with evil. Um, I think this is like a perfect reflective song. It plays as a forlorn Romeo pines over a woman who cannot give herself completely to him. And he's been sad for days. And this is exactly the kind of song and exactly the kind of mood you would find yourself immersed in when you're in a contemplative mode. I agree. I don't, I can't imagine the scene with any other song. It's perfectly chosen. Yeah, I agree. I think it I think the song goes well with the overall mood of the film. It goes yeah. it goes great with the setting that we're we're kind of dropped into when we meet Romeo and it's it just goes so perfectly with him. Like and he's sitting there writing poetry and we're hearing his voiceover and it's just like that's it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it, yeah, it's a brilliant scene and just a great song and I I just it was perfectly it's perfectly executed, perfectly chosen. It, like you said, it matches the mood, the tone. It's literally the perfect choice. Yeah, yeah. So, great song. Always appreciate Radiohead showing up at a, a soundtrack. <laughs> soundtrack party. Um, so, Romeo, basically, he's sad because Rosaline doesn't love him or she's chosen to stay a virgin forever so she can never really, you know, love him entirely the way he loves her. At the same time, we meet Dave Paris, who is played by the adorable Paul Rudd, and he's the governor's son, and he really wants to marry Juliet. He actually would prefer to go about it the, the normal way and, and win her over first, and so her father's just like, okay, well, I'm having this party tonight and you can come to the party. They're planning to like fix Juliet up with Dave and uh, we meet Juliet 
and they're like, oh, we want you to meet him. And she's like, I mean, I'll meet him, but I'm not like making any promises. Like, I'm not going to force myself to like him. And so then we cut to the night of the party. Romeo's friends are kind of teasing him about Rosaline. And this is when we meet Mercutio. And I love Mercutio. I think he is probably my favorite character. And he's so fun. Like, I think every actor who's ever played him had a lot of fun with that role. Romeo says he has a bad feeling about the party because he had a bad dream. And this is when Mercutio's like, oh, I don't think anything of your dreams. And he says that there's futility in believing in romantic dreams. Basically, romantic dreams are useless and they will disappoint you. So you might as well have a chemical dream. So he gives him a hit of X. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I remember my English teacher purposely did not show us this scene. Oh, really? I was going to ask you. Yeah, like he he stopped it around the part where like, because Mercutio is giving the big speech about Queen Mab. It's before like Romeo actually takes the pill off of his finger and puts it on his tongue. From that point up to like when he's tripping at the party, we did not see any of that. So we pretty much saw Mercutio show up, he said a few words, and then next thing we know, Romeo and Juliet are meeting at the fish tank. <laughs> okay. And so that's where we go. We're at the party. Romeo's tripping balls. And he sees Juliet through the fish tank. And they instantly fall in love because, of course, they do. Course. And Tybalt is pissed that Romeo would show up. But uh, Capulet, her father, is just like, no, 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 let him stay. He'll be endured. Like, I'm not going to kick him out here. Da-da. When Juliet finally gets pulled away from Romeo, they realize who each other are. Like, the nurse is like, his name is Romeo. And he's a Montague. Like, it was right before that, that Romeo saw whose company she was in. And he just stares at her and he's just like, is she a Capulet? And that's when they realize that they are in love with, essentially, their rival. Right. And so this is technically where Act 1 would end. But, of course, it's a movie. So we just keep (laughs) going. (laughs) Uh, No intermission here. Uh, but Romeo and his friends are leaving. He sneaks back over the castle walls and he, he listens to Juliet as she professes her love for him. And then he makes himself known. They kiss a bunch in the pool. They're just exchanging like, I love you more. No, I love you more, basically. <laughs> like over and over and over again. It's a little enduring. I kind of tune out during this scene, honestly. It's a little much. I'm like, you guys just met. <laughs> It's a, you're right. It is a little much. And on top of that, I'm just like, y'all are fucking dumb. <laughs> like, y'all are some dumb kids. Like, I don't know. You don't y'all even know stupid. where their mouths have been and you're over here. Kissing in a pool. That's dumb. not, that doesn't taste good, guys. <laughs> um, they profess their love to each other. And Romeo's like, oh, well, then let's exchange vows. And she's like, uh, I kind of already vowed my love for you. You just were eavesdropping. But tomorrow I'll send a messenger and you can tell the messenger where I can meet you so that we can get married. And I'm like, it's just so, this story is ridiculous. Oh, I know, come on. <laughs> I know, I know. How really worked Shakespeare? I would be interested to know. Can we resurrect him and ask? There we go. Let's just have yeah. the ghostwriter. The next day, Romeo is like gushing about Juliet to Father Lawrence. And he's like, wow, you moved on from Rosaline really quick. And Romeo's like, yeah, we're, we want to get married and I want you to do it. And, da, 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 da. and at first, Father Lawrence is like, this is a bad idea. But then he realizes like, maybe their unity will finally end the feud. Mm-hmm. Maybe Capulets and Montagues will be able to shake hands 
and Romeo and Juliet will just be the symbol of peace and and that's what they're that's what them uniting will stand for and then maybe things will be good and then the community can rest and everything will be okay but of course it will not be okay (laughs) just maybe Mercutio and Benvolio are discussing Romeo and then Romeo arrives and he's in a much better mood now and they're like oh look he's alive and they're like kind of teasing him and shit and as they're kind of tussling on the beach, the nurse pops up and she is the messenger from Juliet. So she pulls Romeo aside and she scolds him at first because she's like, if you are at all ingenuine, like, that's a shitty thing to do. Da, 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 da. Like, you know, it don't lead her into a fool's paradise, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And Romeo insists like, no, my feelings are genuine and I want her to meet me at Father Lawrence's chapel so that we can get married and as soon as he says that as soon as he says that he wants her to come and be shrived and married we hear love fool by the cardigans Ah, such a great quintessential 90s oh my gosh yes you can't listen to anything 90s without hearing this song in my opinion like oh absolutely this song is a must on every 90s playlist ever yes ever yes and so um as soon as he tells the nurse that he wants to marry her for real and where to meet her the nurse is like super happy about this and then we cut to Juliet. And she pops up into the frame and she's super happy because she's she realizes that the nurse just got home and she's like anxious to hear like, what did he say? What did he say? And the nurse is taking her sweet time getting settled. Like, oh, give me a minute. My back hurts. Let me get a snack. She's like in the fridge. <laughs> and it's like, it's just that perfect like friend banter where it's like you know someone knows something that you need to know and they're making you wait because it's that great news you know Mm -hmm. and so um the nurse and her just kind of have this back and forth and and Juliet's just like tell me what did he say what did he say she's like bouncing off the walls because she needs to know what did Romeo tell her (laughs) this song loveful by the cardigans plays very briefly during this scene and um, I have spoken about the Cardigans before when they were featured on the Never Been Kissed soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went back and listened to that little snippet, and I really didn't talk about much. I think it's because there wasn't a whole lot of info on that song, and I also apparently didn't go into a whole lot of info about the Cardigans. So I kind of want to redo that <laughs> if I can today. The Cardigans, for those who may be unfamiliar, consist of Nina Person. Peter Svensson, Bengt Lagerberg, Lars Olaf Johansson, and Magnus Svenningsen. One of the sources that I used for this was Todd in the Shadows because I know I mentioned him before. He does a series about one-hit wonderlands, one-hit wonders, and this was one of the songs that he covered, even though technically the Cardigans really... I don't think can be considered a one-hit wonder. I think it's just Love Fool is so popular that nothing else really hit anyone else's radar. I agree with you. I wouldn't count them as a one-hit wonder. 
No, I I definitely don't see them as such, especially since like I know other songs by them. Like I I've seen and heard other songs be used in other notable bits of media. So I'm like, how can they even be considered that? They're obviously everywhere. <laughs> right, right, agreed. Um, and of course, of course, they were big in Japan at first. So you know, Japan does not see them as a one hit wonder for sure. Um, and so I wanted to include a few quotes. Uh, from Todd because I thought that his take is just awesome. One of the things he said about Love Bowl is that this is a massive smash hit. One of the sweetest, happiest songs about abject, pathetic codependence ever written. <laughs> I love the way he said it. And it's super true. Love Fool was written by lead singer Nina Person. Before this, she had never written a song before. She was actually at the airport when she wrote this. When she originally imagined the song, she said that it was slower and sadder in her head, but it wasn't until they went in to record. Their drummer Banked started messing around with a disco kind of beat. Mm -hmm. And after he introduced that beat, none of them could really get it out of their heads. And so they adapted to that sound. And I am so grateful that they adapted because I love that beat. Oh, yeah, same. But I'm okay. so curious as to what the original concept was too. You know, because it is a very, like, I don't, I want to say sad, but I mean like pathetic sad. <laughs> like the lyrics are so desperate. Uh, they They definitely resonate desperate. And I think, I think I like it because of that juxtaposition between the lyrics and then the up, you know, that uppy poppy disco music we get. Yeah. And what's funny is like, I don't typically, I don't always like that technique. Like that's one big reason why I'm not a fan of Everclear. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, I like that. I don't want to hear pop music when you're talking about your dad beating the shit out of your mom. You know, there is some things that it just doesn't work with. <laughs> so some people can pull it off, like the cardigans. Right. I think I think it depends on what we're singing about too, though. But yeah, like for me, it's hit or miss. Loveful happens to be, I mean, I I was singing that song before I knew what it meant. Like I think I was like seven. <laughs> like, uh, agreed. And we all knew that song because 90s. Yes. In this particular case, I think it works perfectly. Other bands, maybe not. But yeah. we're not talking about other bands today. We're talking about the Cardigans. Um, here's a fun fact. First band on the moon, which is the album that featured Love Fool, was released on Boz Lerman's 34th birthday, September 17th, 1996. Oh, wow. He's a Virgo, just like me. <laughs> so fun. The song did not gain traction in the beginning, but then it was featured on the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. Mm. and from there it just kind of took off and here's another quote that I included from Todd he says she knows it's over but she'll do just about anything she just wants lies sweet little lies if that's what it takes to hear what she wants to hear love is inherently humiliating and everyone still chases after it for that sugar rush of endorphins dang yeah I love Todd. I think he's so great. This song hit number two on Billboard's radio songs. It was on the pop chart for seven weeks. Nina Parsons said that the band eventually grew tired of performing Loveful at parties and shows for, quote, drunk college students in America, end quote. 
she said that they really did not see themselves as that kind of band. Like, and I agree, like those parties are more for like Green Day and Blink-182 and like, <laughs> you know, where they just like do shit and get loud, you know, like right, drunk right. music, live party shit, you know? I can, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Like I think of MTV Spring Break. Oh God, yeah. You know? You're right, you're right. Finally, the Cardigans got so fed up with playing this song live that they radio-headed that shit and they refused to play it for a really long time. Oh my God! (laughs) Yeah. They have since come to appreciate the song for what it has provided them with. You know, Nina said, like, at first, the first few years, like, I really hated that song, but now I'm sitting in my house in New York and I love that song. (laughs) (laughs) Again, they may seem like a one-hit wonder, but Loveful is really not a representative of their sound. And fans who are unfamiliar, they often expected to hear that same pop sound. And then they would be disappointed to realize that the cardigans are way more experimental than that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the cardigans went on to make more music. And they were featured on other soundtracks. Erase and Rewind, of course, was on Never Been Kissed. My Favorite Game was on the Sabrina the Teenage Witch soundtrack as it was included in the chase scene from Season 3, Episode 18, Salem the Boy. (laughs) (laughs) The band took a hiatus from being a band for a few years, but they are still active. The only difference now is that Peter Svensson no longer plays guitar for the band. I'll get into that in a second. In his place now is a man named Oscar Humbledo. Nina Person, uh, she's gone on to do a lot of solo work and various collaborations. And then I wanted to note what Peter Svensson has been up to. So obviously he's the one who is no longer an active member of the band. But this is probably because he is now a very successful music producer and songwriter. And he has worked with the likes of Sam Smith, Ariana Grande, Ellie Goulding, Justin Timberlake, Megan Trainer, Carly Rae Jepsen, Avril Lavigne, one Direction, and The Weeknd. What the hell, man? So I don't even think he needs cardigan money yeah, anymore. Right? Okay, boy, I see you. <laughs> Dude, Peter Svensson is the man. Yeah, he is. He is, like, almost solely responsible for modern music as we know it. That is insane. I think that's awesome, dude. I think it's great that he's still in the business He's cashing in. He's working with all these top acts. Like, that's awesome. Good for him. Yeah, like, I mean, that's amazing. Amazing. I mean, it's sad that he's not in the band anymore, but, like, obviously he made the right choice. Yeah, I agree. Um, Just a little bit of a background uh, info about the Cardigans. They are from Sweden. Specifically, they are from Jan Schepping, which when you – Read it, it looks like John Coping, but I listened to multiple people pronounce it, and I'm pretty sure it's Jan Schepping, but I'm so sorry if I said that wrong. Uh, Magnus and Peter had been playing together uh, for a while, and they decided to form the band with a female singer. They met Nina through a classmate, and she auditioned for the band in Magnus's apartment. Nina was so nervous that Magnus had to be in the next room while she sang, just so that she could perform. At the start of their career, they had a very indie sound and feel. But they did not fall under the typical Swedish pop sound. In addition to their fans in the UK, the Cardigans also had a fan base in Japan. And here's one for you, Frankie. They used to do sugar pop covers 
of Black Sabbath songs. <gasps> oh my God. Mm-hmm. I need Mm-hmm. So I'm going to post some covers on the blog. Those covers will include Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, and Iron Man. Oh my gosh! And they've all Black Sabbath isn't even the only band they've covered. They've also done a cover of The Boys Are Back in Town, and I'll see what else I can find. But those are some of the more notable ones that I think you might enjoy. <laughs> I'm I'm not gonna lie. I'm like geeking out a little bit. I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> I think you're gonna like them. This is this is fun. <laughs> Boz Lerman was a fan of the Cardigans. He's the one who asked them to write a song for the movie when he was filming it. But they were actually in the middle of recording First Band on the Moon, again the album that came out on his birthday, and so they decided to just send him some tracks that they had already finished. And of all the ones that they sent, he liked Love Fool the best, and that's why it's included in the film. Such a good choice. And you did such a good job covering all these fun little facts and random things. Thanks, so much. <laughs> I really, really had to dig. Because, like, obviously, like, Love Fool was a big hit. So you can find a lot of that surface info, no problem. But I just, I needed to know more. And I wanted to make up for the fact that I really didn't talk enough about the Cardigans last time. And they definitely deserved, like, a nice little spotlight there. <laughs> I, I'm so glad you went back into this. Is, this was fantastic and fun. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, hon. Okay, so the nurse finally tells her, like, you need to go to confession, and then Romeo will meet you there, and you'll be married. And so she gets super excited. They get married in secret. Only the nurse is in attendance, and the father performs the ceremony, so he knows about it. And then there you go. Romeo and Juliet are a union. And you think things are going to get better, but they only get worse. Of course they do. It's Shakespeare. Uh, it's Shakespeare. And then here comes, like, this is my favorite scene in the film, but also I think the saddest scene in the film. This is when Mercutio and Tybalt exchange words on the beach, and Tybalt is looking for Romeo, and he insults Mercutio. And so they start to have words, but then Romeo shows up, and Tybalt kind of disregards Mercutio because Romeo is the one he came to see. Tybalt challenges him, but Romeo says, like, no, I cannot accept your challenge. I submit. And this is considered very embarrassing, especially since, like, Romeo's doing it in front of his friends. And Mm -hmm. he's looked down upon by his friends by submitting to Tybalt and giving up his gun. And Mercutio does not like this. And so he steps in and he starts fighting Tybalt. And then Romeo's trying to get between them. Finally, Tybalt stabs Mercutio with a shard of glass. And, oh, man, the scene is just so amazing. Like, the dark clouds are rolling in, and the wind is blowing, and Mercutio's just grabbing his side. And he's, like, he's doubled over, but he's still kind of laughing. And they're like, are you hurt? And he's like, ah, a scratch, a scratch. And he gets up on the stage, as he's dying, he's joking about dying. He slaps Romeo's cheek and says, ask for me tomorrow and you shall find me a grave man. And he's saying it with like bravado and he's saying it like it's funny. And he then he looks down at his wound and he realizes like just how bad it really is. Like yeah. he's dying. And he looks at them and this is my favorite line, my favorite delivery, favorite scene. He looks at Tybalt and he looks at Romeo and he says, a plague of both your houses. 
And then he tries to walk away. He's like, they've made worms meat of me. And then he screams under the arch, a plague of both your houses. And it echoes and echoes and echoes down the beach. And I cry every time. It is so sad. <laughs> uh, and it's just wonderfully delivered. And the emotion that Mercutio gives is just in the echoes. Yes. And it's, oh man, it's so heartbreaking. So Mercutio dies on the beach. Tybalt runs off. And Romeo is like hugging Mercutio as he's dying. And he's like, I thought it was for the best. And Mercutio kind of blames Romeo for this happening. And they Romeo just cries over his best friend's body. And then he runs away to his car. And he's going to go find Tybalt and kill him himself. Mm-hmm. We, we see Juliet. And she's still excited to see Romeo because they're going to have sex. Um, but um, <laughs> we don't get to see her joy for very long because then we cut back to... Tybalt and Romeo, and they are racing through the rain in their cars. Tybalt's car flips. They both get out, and Romeo starts charging at Tybalt with his gun, and he's screaming, Mercutio's soul is just but a little way above our heads, staying for thine to keep him company. Either thou or I or both must go with him. And he screams it three times in the street. And he's grabbing Tybalt's gun and pointing it at his own head and says, either thou or I or both must go with him. And they fight. And Tybalt stands atop a fountain and Romeo shoots him and kills him. Intense. (laughs) It's so intense. God, I need to go back and rewatch this. Everybody learns that Tybalt killed Mercutio, and so Romeo killed Tybalt, and the families want justice, and finally, like, Romeo ends up getting banished because he took a life, and so Father Lawrence encourages him, like, go see your woman, and then go hide in Mantua, and we'll figure the rest of it out. So Romeo goes to Juliet's window, and they have sex, and then he leaves the next morning, (laughs) um... They've gone ahead and moved up Juliet's arranged marriage. So she's she's going to marry Dave in like two days. Mm-hmm. And she's pissed. She'd rather die. So she goes to Father Lawrence and she wants to kill herself. And he's like, no, no, no. Like, just take this like vial. You'll be knocked out for like 48 hours. I, don't, I can't remember what it is because in the play, I think it's 42 hours. But in the movie, I think it's 24 hours. Yeah, I think they decreased it. Yeah, because I think it's like a day in the movie. But um, more or less, he gives her a vial of quote-unquote poison. It's really just going to knock her out. She's going to appear dead. They will have a funeral for her. And then by the time it wears off and she wakes up, he promises that he and Romeo will be at her side. And so he's going to keep Romeo in the know because he sends him like a postcard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because Romeo is now hiding in Mantua, living in a mobile home. So I don't even think he has a phone. Basically, we're at the end of the film, guys. We all know how this goes. She takes the vial. They think she's dead. They have the funeral. Romeo gets the wrong information from Balthazar. Romeo decides he's going to lie with Juliet tonight. And so he heads back to Verona. He breaks into her... He Well, he doesn't necessarily break into the church. He breaks into her grave in the play. But in the movie, he just kind of like runs into the church where her wake, I guess, is. And she's got... The most beautiful funeral arrangement. Like, god damn. Yeah, they went all out. Like, she is surrounded by flowers and candles. Like, it looks like Nirvana unplugged in this bitch. (laughs) 
Like, I want a funeral that looks like that as long as it's not a fire hazard, okay? Yeah, I was going to say, that's the only thing that worries me. Yeah, because, like, the candles are even on the stairs. So, like, you can't even lean. Right, you have to be, like, I would feel worried, like, if I walked wrong or stood wrong or, like, bumped it, you know? Like, that would just be my luck. I know exactly right. Like something's gonna get knocked down, and then I burn down Burn everything down, and the body. You know, it's just it's. I don't know if it's a good idea. Romeo comes and lies next to Juliet's supposedly dead body, and he has this really nice monologue about how beautiful she still looks and how death has not taken a toll on her or her beauty, and. Baz Luhrmann does this really amazing thing that I don't think William Shakespeare would have been able to pull off on stage just because the audience isn't right up close with the actors. But Juliet begins to wake up as he's speaking. And just before he drinks the poison, she manages to reach out and touch him. But it's already too late. Mm -hmm. He's already taken it in and she is fully awake and he dies right next to her and super sad and so then she cries and she realizes that he brought his gun so she picks up the gun and puts it to her head and shoots herself and my teacher Mr. Yarbrough always used to say that Romeo took the coward's way out but Juliet was the badass who like actually stabbed herself (laughs) oh yeah after this uh, it's morning Everybody finds out that Romeo and Juliet are dead. Prince scolds the families, and he basically tells them to look at what they've done, look at what their hate has brought. All are punished, is what he says. And so then the movie ends with, For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. And right after the... A little TV set goes to static and then eventually fades to black. We hear our ending credit song, which is Exit Music for a Film by Radiohead. Wake from your sleep You're driving This song plays us out of the film. In the most perfect way, I think. Love it. Yes. So, uh, a little information about Exit Music for a Film, since I've already kind of talked about Radiohead. While the film was in post-production, Baz Luhrmann sent Radiohead a tape of the last 30 minutes of Romeo and Juliet. At the time, Radiohead was on a U.S. tour with, here we go, 90s, Alanis Morissette. Of course they were. (laughs) (laughs) Tom York said that as soon as Juliet held the gun up to her head, they got to work on the song. As he told the story of how they wrote this, Tom York mentioned his deep adoration for the original Romeo and Juliet film from 1968. He said that he had a massive crush on Olivia Hussey, who played Juliet in the film. Okay. Yeah, he said that he actually said this is cool. That original Romeo and Juliet film was a very heavy influence on the band Radiohead. I had no idea. Me either. I wanted to include this awesome quote by Tom because I just thought it was funny and it made me laugh. 
Begin quote. Romeo was an asshole. End quote. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I, well, I mean, there was more to it, but I wanted to pull that one. Tom said he could not understand why the two of them didn't just run away after they fucked. He says that exit music for a film was, quote, written for two people who should run away before all the bad stuff happens. Ed O'Brien said that the only thing that sucks about the song is how they have to compete with the sound of chairs clapping upright because it is the ending credit song. <laughs> Tom actually originally intended to include lines from the play into the song, but he ultimately decided against it. Um, <clears throat> and here's probably, I think, the funnest fact that I came across, and I smiled as I wrote this. In the beginning of this song, Tom's vocals are only accompanied by Johnny Greenwood's guitar. Tom York has said, that there was a particular set of tapes, particular albums rather, that influenced the sound of this particular tune. The slow rhythmic section was a reference to that influential album, Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. And we can just die happy now. So... <laughs> You have no idea how happy I that mean, made me. That completes the circle. Full circle, right? Wow. I love it. I want to read this quote. It's from Q Magazine, October 1997. Tom said, quote, If you listen to the rhythm at the beginning of Exit Music, it starts off like a Johnny Cash song from prison tapes. Amazing. I hate live albums, but I get spine tingles every time I play that. You can hear the audience willing him on, and you can hear he's ill. He can't hit the notes, and yet the songs are so powerful in that environment. Oh, gosh, that man is a genius. And I'm like, I love that Tom York loves Johnny It's amazing. <laughs> and so, guys, I got curious. Because, like, obviously when you listen to a Radiohead song, you hear nothing but Radiohead. We just discussed this. But I'm like, you know what? I need to, I need to, I need to see this for myself. Like, really listen to it with a new objective ear, yes. right? So I went to YouTube and I played Exit Music for a film. But I sped it up times two. And capital letters. Yes, it is totally a rockabilly Johnny Cash song. Play it at twice speed and tell me it's not awesome. Okay, that's our homework, guys. Yep. When you, yeah, when you hear it at two times, it sounds like it could have been recorded at that tempo, and it sounds more like they slowed it down for the final cut as opposed to, like, me speeding up the slow one. It's so cool. That's amazing. I, I, I'm going to have to definitely check that out. Oh, I just wanted to say that <clears throat> I love how this whole thing – connects Psycho, Johnny Cash, and Tom York. Because for those who don't know, Olivia Hussey played Norma Bates in Psycho Part 4, the beginning. Yes. So I just love that this song is connected to Psycho, Johnny Cash, and Radiohead. Like, that's fucking cool. It, everything, yeah. Just a few more fun facts about this song. Instead of a recording booth, Tom's vocals were done in the stone staircase of a manor house located in Bath, Somerset, England, called St. Catherine's Court. Oh, wow. 
Tom York told Guitar World in 1998, this is the first performance that we recorded where every note of it makes me really happy. While this song does appear in the film's ending credits, it was not included on the official soundtrack album. This was Radiohead's choice. They chose to save its release for their OK Computer album, which was released in May of 1997, seven months after the film. The album would eventually be included in the National Recording Registry of the Library of Congress. That is so cool. Good things, good things. And with that, guys, that's my movie. Those are my songs. (laughs) I pretty much only chose the three. um, But those are three songs that I absolutely love and that I think really not only, like, pull the story along, but add to it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Great choice, Misa. Thanks. Some fun facts about Romeo and Juliet. This soundtrack had a sequel, and it was called William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet Music from the Major Motion Picture Volume 2. On this album was the score for the film, and other features include actual audio dialogue from the movie and some songs that were not on the original soundtrack. Oh, I had no idea that they, like, that's amazing. I had no idea. The soundtrack to this film was a success, and it went platinum three times in the U.S. and five times in Australia. Five times? Five times. Wow. (laughs) That's crazy. This play, Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare, is said to have been written sometime between 1591 and 1596. The first documented performance took place in 1662. Dang. And people still love it. Interesting fact, the prologue says two hours traffic of our stage and the film's runtime is two hours. Now, I know this is your favorite part, yeah, Frankie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of the actors who auditioned for Mercutio before Baz Luhrmann decided to choose a black actor include Sam Rockwell. <gasps> no. Christian Bale. Oh, my God. And, of course, Ewan McGregor. Wow. I feel like he's everywhere, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and we, you know what? We are, this, are you, great job, Misa. <laughs> are you loving this? I can't even talk. I'm so excited. Oh, dude, wait. Okay, I have, I have a few more. Hold on. So this, this is awesome. Because, um, again, like, I know, Frankie, your favorite part is, like, listening to, like, who could have been. Because yes. the movie would be so different with these people. So different. Listen to this. Some of the actresses who were considered for Juliet, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Really? Jennifer Love Hewitt. Of course. Christina Ricci. Oh, wow. Kate Winslet. Okay, okay. And Aaliyah. Aaliyah? Aaliyah, but she she said that she wasn't ready to try acting at that point. Whoa. That one shocks me. The other ones are like quintessential 90s actors. Mm-hmm. And here's my last one. Are you ready for this one? No, I don't think I can handle it anymore. <laughs> I'm kidding. Go. <laughs> I feel like when I tell you this, you're going to wish we got an alternate universe movie because for the role of Tybalt, one actor who was considered Benicio del Toro. <gasps> can you imagine give me a second to get my breath together because (laughs) you guys don't know how much I love Benicio like 
Oh my god. I can't I'm 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 so happy right now. <laughs> I just I as much as I and you know we have love for John Leguizamo on this podcast, guys. Oh yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Man is and yeah. John Leguizamo did a fantastic job as Tibble. He's so cold and calculated, but like so is Benicio del Toro mm-hmm. in his roles. Mm-hmm. Man, can you imagine, you know? I so wish that they we could see this. I just can we make this happen, please? All right, or like, is Benicio still acting? Because he can totally do a stage play, and we'll go see that. Oh my god, absolutely! Come on, I, oh my gosh, I love Benicio. That would be cool. One of Boz Lerman's signatures is the red sign reference to Coca Cola. And again, this goes back to the Red Curtain trilogy, guys. You're going to see this particular theme pop up a lot. The imagery of the red sign, it's it's usually a giant sign. And in Strictly Ballroom, it says Coca-Cola. In Romeo and Juliet, the sign reads, Wherefore, L'Amour, L'Amour. And in um, Moulin Rouge, the sign reads, L'Amour Fou, which is mad for love or mad love or something like that. Um, so this is one of Baz Luhrmann's themes that he incorporated in those first three films. The imagery dates back to 1990 when Baz Luhrmann actually incorporated it in his first stage play, which was an opera called La Boheme. And in the opera, the sign simply reads L'Amour. And so Baz Luhrmann was actually inspired to do this when he and his wife took a trip to Paris in the midst of writing the opera and working on Strictly Ballroom at the same time. Boz says that in Paris, the rooftops are very interesting. And another common theme in Paris is signage. And so it just adds a lot of character to the city. And so Boz had a thought. He said, wouldn't it be cool if the characters came out onto the roof and found themselves amidst a sign? That is so cool. Yeah. So that, that was the inspiration for the sign, the image that keeps popping up in some of his films. And he said that him and his wife really just they share a love for old neon signs. And so the, that's kind of like a symbol of them. That's their touch in those movies. That's so sweet. I know. Isn't it cute? And that and those those images are going to be there forever. Like, right. And I love that it's so, like, unique to them. Exactly. Like, it's, yeah, it's like the perfect symbol of their love. And it's just, like, immortalized in these films. Yeah. And it's awesome. These, these films about love, even though, yes, they're also about tragedy. But, like, the overall messages are there. Yes. Agreed. So that's awesome. And then this is my last fun fact. Um, Jamie Kennedy actually is in this film. I may not have mentioned him before. Sorry. Um, he plays Samson. And this was his first real movie. And the black eye that he has in the film was real. He got into a fight at a nightclub in Mexico City. And Boz Lerman really liked it for the character. And he chose not to let the makeup artist cover it up. So that was real. That was a real black eye. And so Jamie Kennedy even says, nothing ever stops him. He always adjusts. And he gives Boz Lerman a lot of credit and praise for the actor that he is today. Wow. I didn't know that was his first movie either. That's, that's really cool. It was literally right before Scream. So, yeah, very, very early, Jamie Kennedy. (laughs) Yes, he's, like, super young baby. He is. They all are. They all are. They really are. They really are. It's crazy. Um, So, yeah, uh, with that last fun fact, guys, that was my movie. (laughs) 
That is so good. You did great. Thanks, hon. So if you have not seen Romeo plus Juliet from 1996, or maybe you haven't seen it in a while, please go check it out. I actually found it for two bucks at a thrift store. Oh my gosh, did you really? Someone was dumb enough to give it up, and yeah, now I have this awesome treasure. (laughs) That is amazing. I'm so glad you found it. I hope you guys enjoyed this 90s-centric episode. I did. I did too. I love that we both always have that like very similar. uh, It just makes me happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like we're like, even though we're so far away, we still have like a synchronization going. Yes. So far yet so close. (laughs) Great job, Lisa. Great choice. Um, Hopefully guys, you enjoyed our flashback to the 90s and you go and watch these amazing movies. Two very different feels. I think you would feel all the emotions just between watching both of these movies. So uh, I can't wait to see the blog. And I know we're going to have some amazing new songs to add to the list of already amazing songs on, where are we? Spotify. Um, oh, this is the part where, sorry, this is the part where we plug ourselves. Um, it's been a while. It's been a while. It has been a while. Let me see if we remember how to do this. Um, so, guys, you can find us on Instagram at Hey Soundtrack City, and if you check out the link in our bio on Instagram, you will find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Music, Spotify, Podbean. You'll also see our blog, which we update after every episode with movie clips and music clips from the songs that we chose. And you'll also find our accumulative playlist. So every time we update the podcast, we will add the songs that we discussed onto this awesome playlist. I don't know how many hours of music we have on it now, but it's quite a few. Yeah, I mean, just all the hours. And I feel like all of the songs on there just take you through such a journey. Good things. Music education is fun. We hope we introduced you to some fun facts and awesome tunes or reminded you of some awesome tunage from the 90s? Yes. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode. I hope you guys did as well. It has been a blast. I am so happy to be back. You know, on that note, May is also, in addition to being with this Awareness Month, it's a uh, Mental Health Awareness Month as well. So uh, mental health, my friends, take care of yourself. Check in on your friends. Some of us are really good at pretending. Oh, that's true. And you you do bring up a good point. In addition to it being Mental Health Awareness Month, it is also Lupus Awareness Month. And I'm not sure how often I've talked about this, but I have lupus. Yes. Uh, and I don't know how many, I don't know if anybody really knows that. Um, I mean, obviously my friends know and I, I was diagnosed... Um, Oh my gosh, can I count? I think I was I, I was diagnosed about eight years ago now. And um, I mean, some days are a struggle. Like I legit have been having flare-ups for the past like five days. And so it's just a matter of like trying to remain stress-free and remembering to breathe and take my meds and smoke away the pain. <laughs> uh, maybe you're unfamiliar with lupus. Maybe you don't know a whole lot about it. Maybe you'd like to know more than you already do. Uh, I can definitely drop some reference links for that, as well as Mental Health Awareness Month. The best way to become an advocate is first to educate yourself. So feel free to do some do some reading on the internet. It's free. <laughs> yes, 
and there's a lot of really good sites um, just for you to become more aware and understand a little bit more about lupus and to break the stigma against um, mental health awareness and just to be more cognizant and, um, you know, start those conversations. Yeah, exactly. Speaking about your mental health, good or bad, should not be considered a weakness. Um, yeah. If anything, it should be considered a strength because it is very hard to be open and honest with people in this day and age, in the age of like social media and and um, vanity, like you know things get lost in the shuffle. But mental health is very important. So we hope you guys are well. Um, and you know, like Frankie said, check on your loved ones because you know you never know what kind of day they're having. If music is where you find comfort and immerse yourself in the music. We encourage it. Definitely. All right, guys, don't forget to check out our amazing blog once Misa gets that posted on our Instagram. We hope you have a wonderful night. And until next time, this is Frankie. And this was Misa. Bye.